The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Hey, everybody. How are you doing today? It's one of those lovely afternoons. This will be my last stream from Texas. Tomorrow I'll be back in the great state of New York uh, and my lovely Brooklyn apartment. But I figured we might as well use this amazing background and our amazing comrades like Ben Rubenstein uh, while we got them, right? So uh, it's gonna be great. We got a great stream for you today. Happy City Builders Day, the Center for Political Innovation official holiday. We're definitely gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk with David Cedillo. We're gonna talk about City Builders Day. We got some clips, it's gonna be awesome. So I guess we'll just jump right in to the intro. Spoken of the American century, I say that the century on which we are entering can be and must be the century of the common man. A radical redistribution of economic power. I mean, we know that racism is just is, is a byproduct of capitalism. Everything will be all right if everything will put back in the hands of the people. We need a government that will make sure Americans are taken care of and organize the economy to serve the people, not the profits of a wealthy few. We now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. We got to start getting out there with the people. Get out of the movement and get to the masses. We need a government of action. Right. Welcome, everybody. We're going to just jump right in to our first chat. This was one of our speakers at the conference, David Cedillo of San Angelo Solidarity, gave a great talk at the conference that happened this weekend about Nicaragua. Uh, he's a great organizer in San Angelo. Hey, David, how are you? Hey, pretty good, Caleb. How's it going, brother? All good. I'm just opening the unnamed diet beverage, pouring it into a cup of ice. As always. You're back in San Angelo, right? Oh, yes, sir. It feels good to be home. Feels good to eat some water burger. Very good. So what was your reaction to that amazing conference we just had? Honestly, I was really surprised. I was kind of teetering on the fact that, you know, how many people are we going to get in the room? And is it going to go well? Are we going to have these little disruptors? But it literally went perfectly without a hitch. Like the room was full. The energy was great. There was a few sketchy characters that instantly got identified. So there's no bumps I could even think of, I, except for our, our maggot fellow. And, and that was more of a laugh. So I would call that a bonus, if, if anything. So oh, oh, that was great. A smashing that was success. That was beautiful. And, um, you know, uh, I guess I wanted to, you know, let folks know now you spoke about Nicaragua. Uh, and I guess you made an announcement at the end of your speech. And your speech is going to be up. It's all being edited right now. We just got our hands on the footage. It's, it's going up in the next few days. Um, but uh, I, I guess first, before we get to your big announcement, do you want to summarize your, your presentation, what you told the audience there about? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'd love to talk about Nicaragua. And I felt kind of bad because I, I wrote down a lot of stuff and there was just some things that I just I was flying so fast through it that I didn't get it. I was, wasn't able to get to. But to generally sum up the experience, I mean, the country is beautiful. The, there's no dictatorship in Nicaragua. There's freedom of speech, freedom of association feels safer than I've ever been in in any major U.S. city, even my own hometown. I wouldn't go walking around at the times I did in the fear of getting attacked by some druggie. Like, that's a bad problem in my town. And in Nicaragua, it wasn't like that at all. And generally, when you hear about these Central American countries, you think, 
oh, unsafe gangs, cartels. There's none of that, like whatsoever. There was the police were always on patrol. There was local night watches, so community policing, like from local Sandinismo type affiliated citizens. Like it was just, it was an amazing experience. And just the amount of intelligent people that the delegation had set us up to meet was just mind boggling all the different sectors we got to see the agricultural the medical the disaster relief the the constructions of their roads and infrastructure it's just an all-encompassing tour that i'll never forget for the rest of my life that's for damn sure i mean you've seen socialism up close and you gave in your presentation a lot of details about what socialism actually means in the lives of working families. I mean, this wasn't some existential thing like, oh, you know, we people are more empowered and there's more inclusivity or whatever. It was actually like real concrete measures to make people's lives better. You want to talk more about what you saw? Oh, yeah. I, I think a really important detail that I missed when I was uh, doing my speech <laughs> is their attempt to remake a Panama Canal type device inside of Nicaragua to connect the two oceans. And this investment has gone a long way. They've currently invested $1 billion into environmental impact research studies to make sure that they're not only making a very efficient canal that won't destroy the integrity of Lake Managua, but also that the people that are going to be affected in the area where the carving is going to happen won't cause harm to their homes, won't cause harm, harm to the villages that mostly preside in the east and the rural indigenous populations. So they're just really working hard with the Belt and Road Initiative to make real material changes happen in Nicaragua. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but a second Panama Canal type thing in Nicaragua that's working for the anti-imperialist bloc would be huge. I mean, it's even closer as a shipping port uh, than the a, a, Panama Canal that already exists. So you could even get investment in people from the imperialist block, just random capitalists wanting to use that port because of its better accessibility. So just the doors that China is opening up for Nicaragua to develop more. I got to see firsthand and get to talk to people who've actually experienced the change. It, it, it was so great. And I'm just so thankful there. I was there whenever the whole Ukraine crisis started to pop off because I was getting getting a very different perspective than was generally said here in the United States. A yeah, much more nuanced. For Russia in Nicaragua, if I'm not mistaken, right? Did you see oh, that in, in Nicaragua? Yeah, they, I think I'm pretty sure they immediately recognized the regions that uh, Russia was going into. So they were on the ball as soon as it dropped. Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that is, that is really tremendous that you had that opportunity. Um, I know you and Lily that you went, uh, you know, Lily and Keaton and myself, we went for the elections and then, the, you know, we sent a follow-up delegation with you and Lily. Um, but also at the conference, after you spoke about Nicaragua, you made a big announcement to the audience there. So do you want to go ahead and, and tell us what that announcement was that you made at our CPI conference? Yes, sir. Um, my announcement is I will be running for single member District 3 City Council of San Angelo, Texas. Wow. And I'll be running as a socialist. So yeah, it's going to be big. I mean, just getting the message out. That's what's important. Actually getting and talking to regular folks about what we care about, what we believe in. It's not this synthetic left message that's been pruned down their throats about inclusivity. It's about real economic progress. You know, I, personally, I care about inclusivity and stuff like that. But I'm very much see that the purpose that we need to focus on is the economics we need to lift up everybody around us and that's what i intend to be pushing with the message of my campaign 
And I think it's going to be something that people here haven't heard before and something that really resonates with them because it's new, it's fresh. It's not the D party. It's not the R party. It's going to be something unique. And that's what people are ready for. People are ready to get out of the minutiae. Yeah. Now, as a think tank, the Center for Political Innovation cannot endorse any candidate or any party, right? However, um, you are somebody who really likes what we have to say. And if you get elected, I'm sure you're going to be listening to our policy proposals, uh, et cetera. So I'm really excited about your campaign. I'm really excited that you're doing it. Let me, let me just put it that way. Um, and I know you also have a group in San Angelo that, I mean, it's not just you. I mean, you have a whole organization that you've built that has regular classes, meetings, regular community outreach, uh, et cetera. You know, uh, yeah. so you want to talk about San Angelo solidarity and the work you do in the community? Yeah, for sure. And that, I think that's what gives me the most hope in the fact that we're going to do well in the upcoming election is because we've been on the ground here for about a little over a year now, just doing community outreach work, trying to get to regular people, trying to give aid to people who need it and to make a name for ourselves by also working with local progress, local organizations, not all of them progressive because we're not purists around here. We're trying to get our hands to be held by everyone who's like an actual serious organizer on the ground because that's the only way we're going to win is if we have a real coalition of average folks because this isn't California or something silly like that this is the deep in the heart of West Texas so if we want to make a legitimate thing happen we're going to work with those people and that's what our organization is focused about we're focused on working class education disaster relief and community organizing And I think all the work that we've done with SAS to try to just help people and show people that socialism isn't this scary boogeyman from 45 years ago who's going to come and take your toothbrush and make it everybody's communal toothbrush. We're we're here to raise the living standards of everybody. Generally, Mm -hmm. if you're white, black, yellow, green, poor, orange, like it doesn't matter. We're we're here for you. And I think that's going to be a message that isn't widely said and will really resonate in that SAS is working really hard to this day to do like right now. In fact, we have another program going on um, with our homeless care packages. We just dumped about uh, $400 worth of resources into buying assorted supplies of hygiene, uh, food, clothing through. And also we've received tons of donations from some of the local organizations that I mentioned earlier, who we're starting to build ties with. Uh, one woman donated a whole load of soap, maybe 75 bars of handmade, scented, you know, not even not even low quality stuff. It's nice seasonal soaps. And we also had a good group member of ours named Gehrig donate around, I want to say this man donated 10, 12 jackets along with a bunch of clothes, not even counting all the donations we've been getting from just random citizens who we've helped out in the past or sympathetic to our cause. So I think if I had done this two years ago with just me, it, it would have gone nowhere. But the fact that we have an organization on the ground actually doing stuff, actually trying to get to people, making these connections, I think we re- we have a real viable shot of making a good name for ourselves and doing well in the election. And, and damn well, I will even say winning the election. Wow, that's very exciting. You know, one thing I touched on in my opening remarks uh, at the conference, I mentioned the power grid collapsing in Texas last winter. And that actually, you know, it touched a chord. The audience heard that. Um, I could tell there was a reaction when I mentioned that. People oh, were yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about, I mean, let's 
it's like vanished from the news. When it happened, it was big news. You couldn't ignore it. But now everyone's like, you know, just put that behind your mind, focused on hating Russia. Last winter, it was an exceptionally cold winter in Texas. The power grid in your state collapsed. Can you describe what happened? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, happily so. So basically, in my town in particular, we had a very unique situation. We went in from a water crisis where our entire water supply was poisoned directly into the big freeze is what we like to call it. And the big freeze literally just completely crippled the entire state of Texas. There is no understating. I'm not being facetious. I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. Everything was crippled. You couldn't get from one place to another. You didn't have power. You didn't have gas. The economy was going crazy. Everything was sold out. It was like you were living in what they try to say all socialist countries are like all the time. But it was happening in the heartland of the United States. It's, it was insane. Personally, at my house, they told us that they were going to do rolling blackout, blackouts from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. And our power went out at 1 a.m. and didn't come back on for five or six days. Wow. So and that and that wasn't a very that was a very common story. It, it, story is a lot sadder too. just children trying to stay warm in their bed and dying of hypothermia in the nighttime because there is no warmth in their house. And I think probably the most disgusting thing that I saw during that time is that the power grid was being used selectively in some situations to keep things like businesses operating. So you wow. drive down the street, you'd see a car wash, you'd see a KFC, you'd see a convenience store open, all lit up. You'll see an insurance firm all lit up. And then you'll drive past just a few more feet and you'll see blocks and blocks and blocks of houses with no power, no heat. It was like the Texas power grid was a few cardboard boxes with duct tape holding them all together. It was just it is something I would never expect to see here in the quote unquote first world. But it really shows like what neoliberalism does. It, it totally gets uh, guts all public infrastructure, all public sense of community and just completely privatizes it and sells it off to the highest bidder, which was the ERCOT company who manages the Texas power grid which is basically an amalgamation of neoliberal forces and investors that just constantly don't do anything. I mean, there was the biggest complaint this year was, hey, ERCOT, you haven't changed anything. You haven't fixed anything. I haven't seen anyone going through ripping up our power lines, going to all the grids, upgrading them. What happens this year whenever it comes around? What happens this winter or the next winter? And everyone was totally angry. And that actually came to fruition to a lesser degree than the big freeze of last year, but over 3,000 communities and homes lost their power this year because of power shortages, just because it was so cold. So it really shows you this technology is running on the area of something that comes from like 1990 to 1970. It's just, it's so unviable as a solution to keep an entire huge state like Texas running at maximum capacity. Sure, I mean, they have the money for wars. They have the money to send weapons to the Nazis in Ukraine. They have the money to, you know, fund NGOs in Nicaragua to try and destabilize that country because they're moving towards socialism. Uh, they have the money to bail out banks. They have the money to give subsidies to big oil companies. But when it comes to basic things like power grids or, you know, paving the roads of the country, the, these things are getting left behind. This is neoliberalism in practice. This idea that, you know, 
need to just defund everything that's public property and let the market, the magic of the market, you know, the invisible hand take care of society. And it's absolutely insane. And it's leading to, to the country falling apart. And Texas, Texas power grid is a great example of that. And that's why I, I highlighted it in my remarks. Um, yeah, yeah, so do you want to talk about, you know, the group that you've got there in, in San Angelo is quite a diverse group of people from different backgrounds, uh, different perspectives. Can you talk about how it came together and, and kind of the different attitudes people have in the group, the different places they came from, how they got involved with your group? Yeah, sure, sure. So I think it's important to give um, a little context about the town first. So we're a small West Texas town, about um, 100,000 people. I guess someone would say maybe it's a medium small town, but it still has that small town charm. And there is no organized left group in San Angelo before us. I think there was a DSA that died two years ago that was alive for about two months. So other than that, it, it's literally just us. And that gave us a very unique opportunity to have a very wide lane and to bring in people who are passionate, but don't necessarily same, share the same perspective at us, as us, but are forced to be with us because there is no other lane. There is no other option. And when they see that our strand of patriotic socialism actually gets the work done, actually is on the ground, actually cares about stuff, because most of these people were, were online a lot and they didn't have an outlet. And I, I, too, was one of those people before. I didn't have an outlet and I didn't have necessarily the same views that I did now. But now that I'm using those views that I have now to go out into my community and actually try to make people learn and help them learn not make them learn help them learn it's really making a lot of budges and a lot of moves i mean there's people that have come from a hostile position to a neutral position from a neutral position to a very positive position and everyone's a work in progress and i was so thankful for my time in nicaragua that i was able to talk to a dr bismarck about a form of teaching that they do there called cooperative learning and i think it's going to really help me a lot and as my role in the CPI as director of education, also my role as a San Angelo Solidarity's I, I teacher, what, whatever you want to call it. I, I, I really feel like there's a lot more that I can do and I want to invest my time in being able to properly get Marxism to these people. And, and I should say, too, like you should see these people seven months ago versus now, like people who are uh, skeptical of the idea of socialism are talking about running as a socialist candidate the next year's cycle after the 2023 election. So people aren't just saying it to say it. People are on the ground doing the work and actually trying to learn about socialism, engage with it, and then taking it up as their own mantle. So I think it really, if even if you're alone and you're in a community that's not where you're at, it's all about just being there for them and showing them hey we're a positive force we actually want to get stuff done if you want to come out and touch some grass you know come out with the cpi come out with sas come out and touch some grass and we'll show you what it's like to actually be an activist actually be an organizer actually be someone who wants a revolution to radically change society for the better and that's part of the thing i really loved about my sandinista trip was that I got to see firsthand, not just a small community that, that's within the CPI or within the SAS that has this extreme solidarity, but I got to see an entire country that has that extreme sense of solidarity. So it, it gave me so much more, like a revitalization. I got my, my, my second and third wind from them at the same time to just 
get up and get in this SAS and just put down the work, damn it. <laughs> well, let me ask you, um, this is kind of a surprise question and you can, you can answer it however you want. But since today is City Builders Day, the official oh, yeah. holiday of uh, the you know Center for Political Innovation, City Building Tendency, what does City Builders Day mean to you? That'll be my last question. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I think it's really important, especially for us in America, to be able to create these kinds of revolutionary cultures that aren't based on, oh, it's it's National Hot Dog Day or it's National Walk Your Dog Day. You know, this, this is it's pointless, it's meaningless. But when we talk about city builders and city builders day, it's something that means a lot to me because in the end, I think we all are city builders. That tendency is alive and strong in the CPI, in the SAS. We don't want to tear down the world and make it some anarcho vision of whatever fantasy world you want to live in. We, we live in the real world and we want to make a real world that is better in that it doesn't follow dogmatism or purity tests or any nonsense like that. We just actually want to get out there and make it better and for everyone, not just for anyone who checks D or R on their voter card, but for everyone. So to me, it, it means a lot. It's my whole guiding ideology at this point. I just really don't want to waste my time on this earth. I feel like I, I want to live till I'm 125 and I, I want to push it. And with that being said, I, I want to use every single morsel of that time to like donate towards the city building tendency because I feel like if I can improve people's lives on a real scale, then my life was meaningful. And that's what gives my life meaning. And that's what city building means to me. Does that answer your question? That's a great answer to the question. And David, I got to say, I am blown away by your relentlessness, your hard work, your organizing, your building community. Uh, you are amazing and more people, I think you should be the model for what every community should do. Every community should have their own version of San Angelo solidarity. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for giving a great talk at the conference. Um, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on this stream. The work that you do is deeply inspiring to everyone. Thank you very much. And I hope you have a lovely, a lovely afternoon here in Texas. Sound good? Oh. Yes, sir. You know I will. You know I will. I'm going to get some water burger. And uh, everybody check out CPIUSA.org, folks. Yes. And where can they follow San Angelo Solidarity? Uh, San Angelo Solidarity is San Angelo, San Angelo Solid One on Twitter and San Angelo Solidarity on Facebook. Very, very good. Well, thank you, David, and have a lovely evening. Yes, sir. Y'all too. Take it easy. Yep. All right. There you go. That was that was a great update. Uh, Happy City Builders Day, everyone. And now, since this is a special broadcast for City Builders Day, I actually decided that we were going to delegate to our good friend, Ben Rubenstein, the task of reading the section uh, in our manual about City Builders Day. This is the We Are City Builders, the, city, the CPI, Center for Political Innovation Educational Manual. And Ben Rubenstein is going to do a dramatic reading. Uh, of the uh, of the of uh, the section about the death of Julius Caesar, the Ides of March, uh, why we picked City Builders Day as March fifteenth. So, with no further ado, David, or I'm sorry, I called you David. I'm sorry. Uh, with no further ado, Ben Rubenstein, go ahead. All right. The typical typical Roman was a hedonist who bet money on Colosseum on Colosseum fights and chariot races while seeking pleasure from orgies, drunkenness, and overeating, often to the point of induced vomit. 
the archetype of a shallow, pleasure-hungry sadist was actively cultivated by the empire. These included gladiatorial shows, infanticide, and other barbaric practices designed to stimulate the primitive side of the human mind. For the minority of Romans, whose intellect would not allow them to be satisfied by hedonism, the Stoic cults emerged to satisfy their need to find deeper meaning in life. For those Stoics, the sadism of Roman life was replaced by the glorified masochism, dressed up in spiritual and philosophical pretensions. Romans who wanted more meaning in their lives than physical pleasure and cruelty would induce states of supposed mysticism with ritualized self-mutilation, flagellation, or even starvation. The Stoics would drug themselves in order to have hallucinations, believing this to be the way of connecting to divinity. The Stoic Romans would worship some new god imported from part of the empire, forming little cults in the hopes of finding truths concealed by the official imperial gods. The Stoic Romans who longed for something more out of life would often be preyed upon by the philosophical conmen like Seneca. These charlatans preached on the supposed ethical merits of poverty while demanding huge sums in tribute from their flock. The apparent hypocrisy of various Stoic gurus and preachers became the subject of many Roman comedies. While the Romans who rejected the hedonism and cruelty of the empire were more intelligent and had potential to create real change, their ability to break with the societal norms was simply channeled into another avenue of self-destruction. Yet, even within this nightmare of historical reaction called the Roman Empire, the city-building tendency within humanity asserted itself. Gaius Julius Caesar, a military man born among the aristocracy, emerged in the late Roman Republic to present a progressive vision. Michael Parenti's award-winning work of political science and historiography, The Assassination of Julius Caesar, A People's History of Ancient Rome, tells of a maligned populist and reformer who championed everyday Romans against wealthy landowners. Parenti writes, he used state power to affect some limited benefits to small farmer, farmers, debtors, and the urban proletariat at the expense of the wealthy few. No matter how limited these reforms proved to be, the oligarchs never forgave him. And so Caesar met the same fate as other Roman reformers before him. Parenti's book recounting the life and death of Julius Caesar was the 2004 online review Books of Nonfiction Book of the Year. The same year that Parenti published his widely praised text, the Caucus for New Political Science gave him the Caesar Achievement Award. Parenti's scholarship was groundbreaking because it showed Julius Caesar in a completely different light, challenging the narrative put forward by William Shakespeare and the Roman historians who favored the perspective of the wealthy elite. Parenti draws from the words of those who demonize Caesar to show that their contempt was rooted in their own class interests. Parenti quotes sources such as the Greek biographer and essayist Plutarch, who accused Caesar of, quote, stirring up and attaching himself to numerous diseased and corrupted elements in polity, end quote. Parenti also quotes Appian, another Roman historian who describes Caesar as having introduced, quote, laws to better the conditions of the poor. The specifics of Caesar's reform show him as a thoroughly progressive-minded leader. Caesar sent the unemployed proletarians of Rome to rebuild city-states throughout the empire in the hopes of making them thriving centers of trade. Caesar constructed public libraries, giving the citizenry access to written records and information. Caesar cracked down on money lenders, lifted the restrictions and penalties on debtors, and imposed luxury taxes on the decadent rich. 
Caesar granted Roman citizenship to all doctors and teachers, hoping to reward and cultivate the kind of people who could make Rome a center of science, civilization, and culture. Caesar was appointed by the Senate for a 10 term for a 10 term as the imperator or Roman head of state. On three occasions, Caesar was offered a crown, but each time he declined to become a monarch. Despite being a strong man, Caesar remained an advocate of democracy and was loved by the people. His power came from thousands of Roman proletarians, free citizens with no property, who saw him as their champion against wealthy landowners and senators. Their mo this mobilization of people as a populari or a populist made Caesar far more powerful than any king or emperor could be. Caesar's vision for reconstructing Rome society involved mobilizing millions of people, not as a plundering raiders extracting tribute, but as city builders continuing the great project of making music, for which Socrates had been executed by a similarly cruel, short-sighted elite. Parenti explains, quote, the Senate aristocrats killed Caesar because they perceived him to be a popular leader who threatened their privileged interests, end quote. The greatest sin of Julius Caesar in the eyes of the Roman elite was his talk of land distribution, ensuring that a tiny oligarchy would not maintain a monopoly over the main sources of wealth for Roman society. The mines and plantations, Parenti quotes, Plutarch in describing how Caesar's land reform law Quote, provided that almost the whole of Campania be divided among the poor and the needy, end quote. Caesar also talked of granting citizenship to people throughout the rest of the empire. Parenti quotes, quotes Roman historian Serco, who bemoaned the C that Caesar planned to confer, quote, citizenship not merely on individuals, but the entire nations and provinces, end quote. If people in Central Europe, Persia, North Africa, and other conquered lands could join with the Roman people in setting the policies and enjoying the fruits of the empire, the civilizations might be more sustainable. Having championed the common people, Julius Caesar was stabbed to death in the hall of the Roman Senate. Parenti explains the assassination, quote, Caesar was branded a traitor to his class by members of that class. He committed the unforgivable sin of trying to rest, redistribute albeit in modest portions, some of the wealth that the very rich tirelessly siphoned from state coffers and from the labor of the many. It was, an it was unforgivable that he should tamper with the system of upward expropriation that they embraced as their birthright. Caesar seems not to have comprehended that in the conflict between the haves and the have-nots, the haves are really have-it-alls. The Roman aristocrats lambasted the palace reforms at the worst kind of thievery, the beginning of the calamitous revolutionary leveling necessitating extreme countermeasures, and they presented their violent retaliation not as an ugly class expediency, but as an honorable act on behalf of the Republican liberty, end quote. The assassination of Julius Caesar, though it was met with riots and rebellions among the people, ultimately doomed the Roman civilization. Some of the very senators who had stabbed Caesar wept by his funeral pyre, they realized that their empire needed a progressive thinker, a strong leader, an advocate of kindness, compassion, and solidarity to lead it towards something better. But yet, in love with their own prophets, the greedy and rich have stabbed to death the very person who could save their empire from its own self-destruction. Vandal tendencies. Thank you very much, Ben. Very good. And that's today. It was, I believe, was it 44 BC? 
In 44 BC, on the Ides of March, which is March 15th, the story goes that uh, Julius Caesar uh, had been warned by a soothsayer that he would die on the Ides of March. Um, and uh, the soothsayer told him, you know, you're going to die on the Ides of March. And he didn't take it very seriously. He woke up in the morning and he was planning to go to the Roman Senate and give a speech. And his wife woke up. Uh, and she had had a nightmare. She also said to him, don't go to the Senate today. Do not go to the Senate today. And he said, I have no interest in your womanish superstitions. And he went to the Senate. And as he was walking to the Senate, he saw the soothsayer. And the soothsayer, you know, he pointed to him. He said, the Ides of March is here, you know, like kind of taunting him, like, look, I'm still alive. And the soothsayer said, yes, but it's not over yet. You know, it's, it's, it has not passed yet or something like that. He got to the Roman Senate. And uh, he was planning on giving a speech. But before he could give a speech, the rich senators of Rome all pulled out their knives and one by one stabbed him to death on the floor of the Roman Senate. Uh, one by one, they took out their knives and they stabbed him to death. Uh, and he was stabbed to death in the Roman Senate right in front of the statue of Pompey, who had defeated in the Roman Civil War just mm. recently. And... Uh, Interestingly, the reason that they had decided they had to kill him was because he had turned down the crown three times. On three different occasions, they had tried to control Julius Caesar, the wealthy senators. In Rome, the Senate was hereditary. It wasn't elected. So it was just you, were, you, you had your title. And the senators were the wealthiest families in Rome. And on three occasions, they figured they could control this popular military leader, this, this powerful guy who was a champion of poor people. They could control him by making him the emperor. They could make him the king. They could just put a crown on his head and they could control him. And that way he'd be the king, he'd be the head of state, and that would control everything. But on three different occasions, he was in the Roman Forum where people gathered the marketplace. And then they started this procession. They started marching toward him with the crown. And on each time, he pushed the crown away. And then the crowd of working class, you know, proletarians would just applaud and, and burst into tears and applaud each time he turned down the crown. So after he turned down the crown on three times, they said, all right, the only way we could stop this guy, he was redistributing our land, he was taxing us, he's giving citizenship to, to people throughout the empire. The only way we can stop him is to kill him. And his plan, his plan was to start granting citizenship to people throughout the Roman Empire. And that would make uh, basically people in the city states like Athens and Alexandria, it would make them, you know, people who had a vote in the election, not of the Senate, but of the Roman National Assembly. Uh, he also wanted to redistribute the land. The source of wealth for wealthy Romans was the land. They were the landowners. If you owned land, uh, you could have crops and grow crops. If you owned land, you could, you know, you have mines that, you know, made metal products, et cetera. And Julius Caesar fought for the proletarians. You know, the word proletarian comes from ancient Rome. And in Rome, you had different classes of people. You, you had among the landowners, you had patricians and plebeians, right? Patricians were the people that had been there from the beginning. Plebeians were new people, but patricians and plebeians, they owned land. And then you had slaves and slaves were not considered citizens. They were property of somebody. But then you had this group of people, they were called proletarians. And proletarians were people who did not own any property, but nobody else owned them either. They had nothing to lose but their chains. Uh, they had no property, nothing to sell but their own labor power. Uh, that was the proletarians. The word proletarian literally means to have children. That is actually the literal definition of the word, because they didn't own anything but their kids. 
They did, they rented the places that they lived in. And usually the reason they were there is they were from somewhere else. They weren't Romans. They were from Greece. They were from Palestine. They were from Persia. Uh, and they had a skill. They had a skill. They were bricklayers. Uh, they were pipe fitters. They were blacksmiths. Uh, they could do something that a slave couldn't do. You couldn't have a slave blacksmith. Any slave can't work with metal. That's a very skilled trade. Uh, any slave couldn't you know, lay bricks and make a brick wall. That required somebody who knew what they were doing. So they were the craftsmen of Rome. And the proletarians, uh, you know, they had a, a situation where things were different uh, because Rome was the first society in history to have unemployment. When you have proletarians, you have unemployment. Slaves are never unemployed. They're always employed, I guess, but they don't get paid wages. They're just the property of somebody else. However, a proletarian, when they can't find work, they're unemployed. And in Rome, you had unemployment. And in Rome, you had homelessness. And people all over the world would come to Rome and they'd be perplexed. They'd be confused because they'd say, Rome is the capital of the world. This is the center of this global empire. You know, it's all over the known world, North Africa, Europe, the Middle East, all of the known world is, is run by Rome. It's bringing in money and tribute from all across the world. So how is it that there are people on the streets begging you for money? Everywhere you went in Rome, there'd be people begging you for money. Well, these were unemployed proletarians. There actually, there was a big epidemic in Rome of homeless children. You know, there were all these children who were homeless because their parents were proletarians. Their parents couldn't take care of them. And they're running around the streets, robbing people. It was a, it was a big problem. And Rome, you know, being the society that had proletarians, it had big problems. So you have the rise of what they called the populares or the populists. And uh, there were many before Julius Caesar. But the first, uh, you know, you, we had the Gracchi brothers, they were called. And there were two brothers that like led you know, tried to conquer Rome and become the leaders. They were the Gracchi brothers. And Julius Caesar, this, this well-known military leader, uh, you know, he became a populare or a populist. And he started enacting all kinds of reforms to benefit the proletarians. He built public libraries. And public libraries, it wasn't just so they could read, you know, read because it was fun. There was no printing press back then. All, all, all writing was written by hand. The idea of the public libraries was that they had the books of the laws there. So they could have access to the laws and they could argue with people and, and, and they could invoke the laws, right? Because if you didn't have access to the written record of the laws, you had no ability to, to stand your ground. And so proletarians, giving them access to written information and in libraries was very key. Another thing that he did um, was uh, he, he started freeing slaves. Anyone who was a doctor, he stopped having slave doctors. That used to be, you know, before Julius Caesar came along, that was like the best slave you could get was a slave who was a doctor. Julius Caesar says, no, if someone's skilled enough to be a doctor, they're not going to be a slave. They're going to be a proletarian. He made doctors free. Another thing that Julius Caesar did, and this is fascinating, Julius Caesar legalized monotheism, right? In Rome, in Rome, there were a lot of different gods. You know, they had the official Roman gods, Jupiter, Mars, Saturn, whatever. Um, and then there were a lot of, you know, religions from around the world. They brought in gods from ancient Persia. They brought in gods from, from Egypt. You know, there was cults that worshiped the Egyptian gods and that was fine, but you couldn't believe in only one God, because if you did that, then you were denying the gods of the empire. And Jews had a little bit of a problem with that because Jews believe in one God. It was Julius Caesar who changed the law. And he said, if you want to believe in only one God, that's allowed, which was a very, very, very big deal. He legalized monotheism. Um, I mean, all kinds of progressive reforms. And then he had this plan. And that plan scared the crap out of the Roman elite, which was to start sending the unemployed proletarians of Rome. They had this big problem with all these unemployed people. He wanted to start sending them to cities throughout the empire 
and making these cities trading hubs, right? You know, the, the way the Roman Empire had been set up, it was all centered around Rome. All roads lead to Rome. And Rome was extracting tribute from the whole world. And Julius Caesar said, well, we're going to take some of Rome's wealth and we're going to start building Alexandria. We're going to send thousands of unemployed proletarians to start building up Alexandria. So Alexandria could be a center of trade. And then we're going to take thousands of proletarians, we're going to send them to Greece, to Athens, have them start building up Athens. And he had this plan to start making a network of cities throughout Europe, throughout the Middle East, throughout North Africa, that would be centers of trade so that the whole world wouldn't be centered around Rome. It was basically like a 44 BC vision of the One Belt, One Road Initiative. And it was a way that would have made the Roman Empire much more sustainable, right? By bringing development to different regions. Instead of the whole world getting poorer so Rome could keep enriching itself, different regions would get wealthier. And then he eventually wanted to give the people in these cities, he wanted to give them citizenship so they could vote on the Roman National Assembly. They would have a say. And the idea was to change Rome's relationship with the world. Rome was basically holding back development. Because Rome was a slave empire. They had slavery. And slavery is a very inefficient system. Very inefficient, right? Not only is it barbaric, people owning other people, it's highly inefficient. All right. What motivation does a slave have to work? Not much. Life, I guess, is about Yeah, life. right. I mean, the, you know, they, they work and their master will not beat them. They work, their master will not deprive them of food. But that's about it. And slavery in a household where there's like, you know, a household and they have like five or six slaves, they benefit from the household getting wealthy. So there's some of it. But when you have a huge mine, you have thousands of slaves working in that mine, or you have a huge plantation, you have thousands of slaves working in the field, those slaves have absolutely no motivation to work. So what do you have to do? You have to grab one slave and his job is to make all the other slaves work. And he is going to be Mr. Popular, who's loved by everyone, right? And he's just going to do his job enthusiastically, you know, obviously not. So then you're going to have to get another slave who tells the slaves who tell the slaves what to do. You see? Yeah. And the more slaves you get, the bigger those mines get, the bigger the plantations get, the more inefficient slavery becomes. And the Roman Empire, the bigger it got, the lower and lower their industrial capacity got. The amount of crops they were growing was constantly going down. The amount of uh, the amount of mine uh, mineral extraction and metal production they were carrying out was constantly going down. The richer they got, the lower their ability to produce goods was. Um, and Rome had this problem, and that that they were becoming less and less efficient as a as a as an empire. Meanwhile, in a lot of the countries they were they were they were taking over. Right? They would they would take over this area, and they'd be like a local king, and they'd force him to pay tribute, send so many of his people as slaves or whatever. A lot of those places they were conquering had feudalism, and feudalism is a higher mode of production. In feudalism, the way it works is that the peasant, you know, they work the land, and then they give their rent or their taxes to the landowner, and then they get to keep whatever's left over. So the peasant wants to produce as many crops as possible because he wants to maximize the amount he gets to keep. So it's actually much more efficient. So Rome was going around to, to countries and, and empires and city-states that had a more efficient way of doing things. And with their big military forcing more efficient societies to hand over stuff so they could keep their very inefficient backward, backward system intact in Rome. It was a reactionary empire. And Julius Caesar, apparently, because he was going around and fighting the Germans and the Gauls and and then fighting different people and fighting in Africa against uh, against um, uh, who was it, Hannibal and he was realizing, wow, there are these much more efficiently run societies. And we have a really good military here in Rome. 
But other than that, the way we're operating as an empire is really, really inefficient. And uh, we can do this better. And so it seems that like even within this barbaric, primitive, reactionary, brutal society based on slavery and murder, there was somebody who had like some level of intelligence among the Roman elite who said, wow, we can do a better job. We can fix this so that it doesn't just lead to a total collapse. And so within the Roman elite, you have Julius Caesar emerging. And then he realizes that if he's going to basically if he's going to save Rome, he's got to you know have a fighting force to back him up. And so he becomes a Bonapartist. He builds an army of proletarians to have his back against the elite as he's passing these reforms. And the elite can't stand him. They can't stand him because he's doing all these progressive things. They hear about this plan he's got to completely change the Roman Empire, and uh, they they try to control him by giving him the crown. That doesn't work. They do it again. It doesn't work. Doesn't work. Does it again? It doesn't work. And so finally, with no other choice, they stabbed him to death, March 15, 44 BC, mm -hmm. on the floor of the Senate. He's stabbed to death, you know, uh, and the blood, you know, pours all over the floor. I mean, there's, I, I use the, the icon, the thumbnail for this stream is actually a famous painting, you know, and it's not like a photograph, obviously. You know, we don't know what it actually looked like, but so he's stabbed to death, right? And then the proletarians hear about this and they're, they're, full of rage. And so there's rioting all over Rome. The people are rioting and tearing things apart. And they start like breaking into the homes of rich people and breaking apart their furniture. And like they build like a funeral pyre in the center of, of Rome and they burn, you know, that's how they, they, they got rid of bodies. They burned people, right? Mm -hmm. And so they build this funeral pyre and it's almost like a spontaneous uprising in the aftermath of the death of Julius Caesar. And then after that, there's a civil war. It leads to a civil war between um, Mark Anthony and Julius Caesar's nephew, Octavian. Um, and Julius Caesar, was it his nephew or I think it's his, his or his adopted son, Octavian, right? Mm -hmm. Who eventually becomes Caesar Augustus. But Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, they're on one side and his nephew is on the other side. And there's a big civil war, Romans killing other Romans. And eventually out of that, you have his relative, Octavian, wins and declares himself, he takes on Caesar's name, he becomes Caesar Augustus, and he becomes the first emperor. There's no more democracy in Rome. The Roman Republic is abolished, right? That's the end. The death of Julius Caesar was the end of the Roman Republic. Um, and that was the beginning of Rome's downfall. That was the moment when Rome became irredeemable. Uh, you know, that was the end because Rome had had a quote unquote democracy or a republic. It had a, it had a republican form of government. For the simple reason that it was a society based on conquest, it was an empire, and they needed everybody to be motivated to go out and fight and build the empire. And so in order to do that, they needed all the wealthy families to feel like they had a say, like they had a vote in the Senate, you know, by giving, having a Senate of all the rich families represented, having an elected national assembly, that made everyone in Rome kind of feel like they had a say. Just there had just been one king, you know, there might've been a lot of people who didn't really feel motivated, but since it was a society based on military force, they wanted to have a Republican government, so there would be kind of a consensus and a feeling that everyone had some skin in the game. But the death of Julius Caesar and the civil war that after that basically showed that the elites couldn't have democracy anymore because democracy was too dangerous, because the rabble might get involved and the rabble might find people to fight for their rights. So with Caesar Augustus, uh, you have you have the end of, of the Roman Republic, uh, you have the, the emperors, um, and Caesar Augustus, uh, who came after. Julius Caesar is actually the personal hero of Mark Zuckerberg. Interesting, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, uh, because he was the the, lead, the ruler of the known ruler, and he imposed Pax Romana, peace, because Rome was the center of it. And that's what Caesar, 
that's what that's what Mark Zuckerberg kind of envisions for himself. He wants to be kind of the ruler of global information who ensures peace in the world. It's really eerie that he would say this, like, you know, that's his hero. Um, but Rome starts declining after that because it just it, it doesn't become a very functional society uh, at that point. And, you know, the proletarians continue organizing for their rights. And actually, you know, in this this book, uh, which is called Jesus is a Socialist, I quote extensively from Karl Kautsky, uh, who was the leader of German social democracy, he wrote a very important book called The Foundations of Christianity. And he talks about how Christianity uh, really began in Rome. Now, obviously, there were there was Jesus in Palestine. You know, there was there were you know followers of, of Jesus in Palestine, et cetera. But it was really in Rome, first among Jewish proletarians, Jewish craftsmen, that you started having people who worshipped Jesus the carpenter, this prophet uh, of, of Jews who had been executed by the Romans. And Christianity suddenly became a political vehicle for the proletarians. See, there were no political parties back then. People didn't have parties. But in Rome, they had what they called mystery cults. It's kind of fascinating. So, you know, there, it was a, you know, a society where the people believed in many different gods. Well, there was a god of the ocean, right? The Greeks called him Poseidon. I think it was Neptune. So if you were in the Navy in Rome, you were part of the cult of Neptune and they had special temples and there were special like secret rituals that only people that were in the Navy knew about. And I think there was a, a God for certain sections of the military and they worshiped, you know, like, like Mars and they had certain ceremonies. So in Rome, in Rome, your job basically, you know, dictated what of these mystery cults you would be a member of, right? And among the Roman elite, some of them were joining you know, they started worshiping a god called Mithra, I believe, who was from Persia. And then, you know, Cleopatra, you know, who had an affair with Mark Anthony, she was bringing in like the worship of ancient Egyptian gods. And it, your, your religion was based on what section of society you were in, certain, certain ideologies, certain beliefs. So among the proletarians, as they started like having strikes, the first strikes in history are among Roman proletarians going on strike. As they started organizing themselves, they said, we got to have a mystery cult of our own. So they started worshiping Jesus, the carpenter, right? And, and the proletarian Christians, right, were organizing, you know, under, under, and originally, if you read the Gospels and the Bible, it talks about how, uh, you know, originally Christianity, only Jews could do it. And then the Apostle Paul says, well, you know, I mean, they had a little bit of a problem because in order to become a Jew, you have to get circumcised. That's a little bit of a recruiting problem, you know, you can imagine why. So, so then, you know, you have the Apostle Paul who comes along and he says, well, technically you can be circumcised in the spirit. Right. And so suddenly the church in Rome, it, it, it becomes at that point, And what, what is this person? Pardue built cities. David Bowie destroyed Rome. I don't even know what that means. Anyway, um, so Christianity started, you know, being a religion of all the proletarians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were many, many different versions of the Bible, like every every little church had its own scroll that had its own versions of it. But as Christianity started to catch on in Rome, it became the religion of the proletarians, the way that they organized themselves, the way that they went on strikes. And they also, you know, had services. They built orphanages for all those homeless children and they, they raised food for, for the unemployed and they had kind of social insurance. And so, of course, the Roman Empire hears about this. And, you know, that's why we hear about Christians being fed to the lions and, you know, and being, being persecuted, et cetera. Um, so, you know, the Christian church was underground. Uh, you hear the stories about, you know, there's that fish, you know, that fish, the ichthus, they call it, right? Right. Uh, have you ever heard of this? It's no, like the Jesus it. fish. It's like, you know, people have it on their cars now and stuff. Well, the way that started was that uh, in ancient Rome, it was it was illegal to be a Christian because it was considered this revolutionary proletarian ideology. 
So to, to like the code is if you wanted to know somebody else was a Christian, you would draw like half of it in the sand. And if somebody was also a Christian, they would like draw the other half of it. And it was like a secret sign, right? Yeah. That, that fish symbol was the symbol. Um, we'll definitely get to that. Do you want to take that question down? Sure. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll definitely answer that question. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that was like the code for, for how to know if you were a Christian. It's really, really fascinating. It was this kind of underground movement. And you hear about Christians being persecuted. So that gets me to the book of Revelations, which is the, the last book of the Christian Bible, the current, you know, the Christian Bible that was, you know, the Council of Nicaea, they ultimately voted in. The book of Revelations has long been a, a thing that Christians don't agree about, right? I think the, the, the Catholic Church believes it predicts the fall of the Roman Empire and the ascension of Christianity in Europe. Uh, evangelicals believe it's about the second coming of Jesus in the end times. If you read the book of Revelations in the Bible, that is basically an anti-revisionist manifesto among the Christians. It is a rant against revisionists. So what was going on was that, you know, in the Roman Empire, there started to be a question among the Romans, you know, that, that Christianity was not going to go away. They burned a lot of people at the stake. They fed them the lions, et cetera. But, uh, but it was going to keep existing. And so the question was, you had some among the Roman elite who said, well, maybe these Christians can serve a different purpose, right? For example, we have all these homeless children. These Christians are building these orphanages. And that kind of deals with, you know, we don't have to worry about getting jumped on and robbed by homeless children anymore. So maybe we can do that. And also there were some among the Roman elite who said, you know, every area that we go to, they have their different God. You know, the Germans, they have, you know, Botan and Valhalla and they rally around Botan against us. And the North Africans have their gods. And the first, what if, you know, but Christianity says there's only one God. And if when we conquer an area, if we just completely outlaw all their gods and force them to just worship one God, we might be able to control these people more. So among the Roman elite, you started to have increasingly a number of wealthy Romans who said maybe Christianity isn't so bad. And so even though it was technically illegal, you had Romans converting to Christianity, but they were preaching a watered down version of Christianity that wasn't about overthrowing the Roman Empire, but was more about using elements of Christianity to make the Roman Empire more efficient. Sounds familiar. Absolutely. And that's what the book of Revelations is about, because the book of Revelations is a rant against the whore of Babylon. There's pages about the whore of Babylon, and it's one who speaks in the name of God, but is, you know, is actually the enemy, right? And there's that passage that anti-Semites always like to quote. It's like, those who say they are Jews, but are not Jews, for they are the synagogue of Satan. Mm. And, you know, anti-Semites quote that, but it's basically saying there's people that speak in the name of Christianity, but are actually, you know, doing the opposite of it. And they're, you know, and it's the whore of Babylon. There's like, I believe there's a line in one translation that says the king of the world, which is the Roman Empire, shall have sex with a famous prostitute. Meaning that there is sections of our Christian movement that have just become prostitutes. The empire. And if you read the book of Revelation, there's all this ranting against the whore of Babylon because she's selling out. She claims to speak in the name of God, but she's actually a whore for the empire. And it's all about how, you know, there's this glorious moment will come where, you know, the Antichrist, the king of the world, the Antichrist, i.e. the Roman Empire, will be overthrown. And not only does the Antichrist meet his end, but also the whore of Babylon sold out our religion for the empire. You know, that's that's what it's saying. And if you look at it, I mean, you can really interpret the book of Revelations as the first uh, anti-revisionist screed. Of, of communism because really i mean christianity was they they didn't have science back then they didn't have sociology they didn't have you know they didn't understand things in scientific terms christianity was a spiritual expression a spiritual expression of the proletarian move that's really what christianity was and he's writing down your super chat 
That's really what Christianity was. It was in spiritual terms, an expression of the proletarian movement of those who are not slaves, but also own no property, nothing to lose but their chains, nothing to sell but their own labor power, organizing themselves and fighting for their rights. That's what Christianity was. Christianity was communism circa, you know, circa BC, right? It was communism among Roman proletarians. It was the first expression of the proletarian movement. And Karl Kautsky documents this extensively in his book, The Foundations of Christianity. There are other books, Elaine Pagels, the great scholar Elaine Pagels, who's widely respected. I think she teaches at Yale. She's written about this. There's many other texts that basically, you know, Jesus was some kind of zealot. He was an ancient Palestinian Jew who led some kind of armed uprising against the Roman Empire. And there was worship of him after his death. There was a feeling that even though he'd been crucified, he will return and come again and we will be dignified. And some Roman, uh, you know, some Jews, when they worked in Rome and were, you know, becoming pipe fitters or bricklayers, kept worshiping him, right? And the fact that he was a carpenter, he wasn't a slave, but he wasn't a master. He was a carpenter. He was a, he was a proletarian, basically. That was a big part of it. And and it caught on in Rome. And it was like it was like the worship of this of this. This, this prophet of the ancient Jews who had fought against the Roman Empire became the religion of the Roman proletarians in Rome and laid the basis for Romans to start organizing, Roman proletarians to start organizing for their rights. And then the Romans started adopting it and watering it down. And basically they took uh, Christianity and turned, they, it's basically Marxism of, of Europe, uh, you know, becoming social democracy. Um, you know, uh, we have another question here. Uh, he's writing it down. And so social democracy, uh, social democracy, you know, the Christianity that the Roman Empire eventually adopted. And then we, we know what happened, which was that we have the conversion of Constantine, right? There was the famous conversion of Constantine. Constantine was this Roman Empire, a Roman emperor, Constantine. And the story goes that he went to bed one night and he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw a cross in the sky. And this godly voice said to him, under this sign, ye shall conquer. And he woke up and he said, wow, I'm a Christian. And then he went out and he won the battle. They painted crosses on their shield. They won the battle. And now we know that's not true. What had actually happened was that Emperor Constantine's mother had been a Christian. She had been a Christian, even though it was illegal. She had converted. She'd been one of these wealthy Romans who was, you know, converting to Christianity. And she, from the time he was a little boy, had been telling him about Jesus and, and all kinds of things. So, Rome, you know, Constantine grew up with Christianity, but the official story that the Catholic Church adopted was, you know, this cross in the sky and all of that. So Constantine converted to Christianity. The Roman Empire, I mean, first, I think after him, you had Justin the Apostate, but the next Roman emperor was not a Christian, but, but then whatever. And then Rome became Christianized. And the funny thing is, whatever that voice was in Constantine's alleged dream was completely wrong because, because if you look at it, the opposite happened. Almost simultaneously with its conversion to Christianity, the Roman Empire fell. And, and the problem with that is that, uh, you know, there's a reason for that, which is that, that Christianity was not intended, like the teachings of Jesus, the, the beliefs of the Roman proletarians were not intended to make the Roman Empire better. They were intended to make the, the Roman Empire fall. It was a revolutionary movement to overthrow the Roman Empire. And the Romans might have thought, well, we can adopt elements of this to make our empire fall, but it didn't work, ultimately. It didn't work, right? And that they were trying, they were trying to make their empire more friendly. I mean, there's, there's so many details about this we could go into, but like, for one thing, you know, Killing children, infanticide, was a huge part of the Roman Empire. You know, it was actually, if you had a child who was born deformed or disabled, if you didn't kill them, you would get the death penalty, right? Wow. 
Yeah, they actually had this ceremony where there was the, the man who's the landowner man who's the head of every household. Whenever a baby is born to one of his wives or a slave, there's like this ceremony where they would like present the baby to the, the father of the house and he would inspect it. And if he wanted it to live, he would say, okay. And if not, they chucked it in the river. I mean, and it, and it was required. And if your child was disabled or anything and you didn't kill it, then you would get hanged for that, right? So it was like infanticide was a huge part of it. And it's just, this, you can know, imagine that the trauma of that practice. And that's why, by the way, um, you know, like many, many, you know, ancient stories are about abandoned children who go on to do amazing things, mm. right? Uh, for example, I mean, you can talk about, I mean, the founding myth of Rome is, you know, Romulus and Remus, two twin brothers, they're born and their father says, no, nope, we don't want them. So they're thrown by the river. But then a wolf comes along and nurses them. And that's the story of how the Roman Empire started. It's probably not true, but it's the legend, right? Um, and then you can go back, you know, into the Bible. Moses is like abandoned, you know, and then he's, you know, and, and Joseph, his brother is like killed. And there's so many stories in the ancient world about abandoned babies who go on to do miraculous, amazing things. And it's almost like with these legends, they're trying to cope with the trauma of what they're seeing in everyday life, which is the practice of infanticide, which is so barbaric. Well, when Christianity comes along, they say, we're not going to kill babies anymore. And they actually do the complete opposite. They outlaw infanticide. Hmm. Now, I mean, that sounds good to me, right? I mean, but at the same time, when you're building this barbaric empire, it's all about conquering people. And it, you know, it's going to make your empire, if you're, if you're building an empire military society where people are barbaric and cruel, it's going to make uh, it's going to make your society, quote unquote, weaker. You know, you're not going to be an effective empire. And that's the thing is that that as the Roman Empire is adopting Christianity and adopting, you know, love thy neighbor and be kind, it's becoming weaker and, and it's becoming weaker and weaker. And in a lot of ways, you know, the, the Christian teaching was this revolutionary teaching. We're going to rise up against the rich. But in a lot of ways, the, the Roman Stoics, like you read about the ones who, you know, they, they almost make it into their thing. They, you know, some of the some of the sayings of Jesus, for example, are also said by Seneca, right? And so it's like, it's clear that like some of the writings of Seneca, you know, and some of his teachings, you know, like I think there's some of the phrases, as ye sow, so shall ye reap, right? That's in the Bible, but that also comes from the Roman philosopher, the Stoic philosopher Seneca. And uh, this idea that you know, instead of, you know, telling poor people to rise up against their oppressors, it's like, it's like, if you can suffer in this life, if you can suffer your oppression, that makes you noble. Right. And you'll be rewarded in the next life. And that Christianity increasingly becomes just the ideology of the empire. Everyone's getting kind of weaker. And it's instead of being this bold ideology about tearing down an empire, it becomes this ideology about submitting. Right. Um, and, and you see that. And that's actually if you read the Christian Gospels, it seems like Jesus has two speeds. Like one minute he's saying, I come to the earth. You know, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. I come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And and if you're not ready to go out and die for the revolution, you're not worthy of being around me and, you know, leave your house, leave your family, be part, you know. And, and then another time he's just saying, you know, blessed are the blessed. And it's like, wait a second, which which one is it? Well, that's because there were there were two religions, basically. There was Romanized Christianity that was about making their empire more efficient. And there was the revolutionary movement of the proletariat. Um, and so it, it's crazy because, you know, one of the most important texts in the history of Christianity is. Uh, St. Augustine, he wrote The City of God. The City of God. And The City of God was this, this key text of Christian theology. And it's written basically about the fall of the Roman Empire. Because as Christianity is emerging, it becomes a really big problem in recruiting people to convert because the biggest empire in the world, the Roman Empire, fell as soon as it adopted their religion. And that's not a very good selling point. If you're going around the world and saying, hey, you know, adopt our religion, people are like, wait, the biggest empire in the world adopted your religion, and then it collapsed, 
you got a problem there. And so that whole book, City of God, is St. Augustine trying to rationalize that and trying to explain that. It's written from a very, very defensive place. It's kind of fascinating. But all of this history, this is why City Builders Day, March 15th, the Ides of March, is the holiday of the Center for Political Innovation. Because I believe we are, we are approaching an Ides of March moment in America. We are approaching a time in American history that is like March 15th, 45, 44 BC in Rome. Because the United States, its relationship with the world is reactionary. It is barbaric, it is primitive, and our country is falling apart. And the question is, what do we do? Right. Well, you know, I mean, as a good leftist, we're like down with the empire, tear it all down. It's like, wait, hold up, hold up. Right. The fall of the Roman Empire. Was that a good thing? I mean, it was good in the sense that an evil empire was gone. But in terms of what life was like after the fall of the Roman Empire, it got worse. Mm -hmm. Uh, The population of Europe, it took 1,100 years for the population of Europe to be restored to what it had been at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. Human height went down by like two inches. Right. Calorie intake decreased. Europe went from being, you know, under the boot heels of this brutal empire to being in complete instability and chaos. Um, And, you know, I mean, the ability of people like literacy vastly decreased. You know, all kinds of books were destroyed. It was a disaster for Europe. And it it wasn't really until the time of like the American Revolution that that Europe was starting to like come out of that nightmare. There's been they call it the Dark Ages. It was a it was a period of just decay and no scientific progress. And it was a disaster. And that can happen. People assume that if something bad goes away, you'll always get something better. And that's not necessarily true. Sometimes you can have something bad that gets replaced by something worse. And that's what we're facing here in the United States. The United States is going to fall. Let me repeat that. The United States is going to fall. It's only a matter of time. However, there's a very good chance that the fall of the United States will be like the fall of Rome that it'll lead to just societal chaos, instability, life expectancy going down, depopulation. And this is what Rosa Luxemburg wrote about in her very important, it's called the Junius pamphlet, a pamphlet she wrote about World War I. She said, the way the imperialist West is moving, Germany, Britain, France, United States, they're moving toward a collapse. This will eventually, the ultimate end game of imperialism is going to be a collapse that will be like the fall of the Roman Empire. And that is a dangerous prospect. That's not what we want. We want the city building tendency to emerge. We want somebody like Julius Caesar to come along and say, you know what? Instead of having this relationship with the rest of the world where we just beat down countries, maybe we join the Belt and Road Initiative. And maybe we empower the American proletariat. That's what we need. We need Julius Caesar here in the United States. That's that's the only road out of this that is like a happy ending. We are facing the collapse of American imperialism which in a way is a good thing because it's an evil empire, but potentially, if it continues on the trajectory it's going now, it will lead to things being worse. And that is why we need to develop the city building tendency. And that's the importance of March 15th. And that's why every year, I mean, I'm in Texas, we're doing this very special stream. We just had an amazing conference. We need to talk about City Builders Day. We need to talk about what happened because there will be, I, I don't think it's there yet, but among the American elite, among the American military, among the American ruling class, among the American intelligence agencies, there will emerge some entity that will be like, okay, our country's falling apart. Russia and China have got their shit together. Um, We need to not let the United States go down the path of complete collapse and decay. So there's going to emerge some kind of Bonapartist force within the American elite. 
And our job as proletarians will be to make sure that they don't get stabbed to death on the floor of the Senate and to have their back and to push them to be more revolutionary because they won't be revolutionary. Let's be real. They're going to be just like they want to preserve the status quo. They, you know, you know, there's going to emerge a faction within the American elite that is going to understand that Russia and China are not the enemy and that the United States continues on this path. If we don't restructure our economy, we don't empower the proletariat, that we're going to collapse. And there's going to be sections of the elite that come to realize that. And our job will be to mobilize the proletariat to have their back and to push those people in a more socialistic direction. Because ultimately, that's the only thing that can save this country. Socialism. That's the only thing that will save the United States from the crisis it's facing. And it has to move towards socialism. And that will be our job. And that is what I want people to understand. And that's why we, the Center for Political Innovation, we are the city building tendency in the United States. That's why City Builders Day, March 15th, is the day, is we need people to understand this, right? And then a lot of the left, they just have this attitude, burn it down, tear it down. They're missing the point, right? If you burn it down and tear it down, well, that's great. All the bad things that are here get torn apart. And then we get utter chaos, which is a lot worse. Whereas there, there is the potential within the chaos for some kind of faction to emerge that can change our relationship with the rest of the world and make the United States operate in a sustainable way. And that's what we need to be looking for. The slogan that for City Builders Day should be, where is Julius Caesar? Because there is a Caesarian city building tendency, I believe. It may take a while, maybe five years down the road, maybe 10 years down the road, but there will be, there will be a Julius Caesar who emerges in the United States. You know, and it won't be easy. It'll be difficult. But if things continue the way they're going, there are going to be people in positions of power in the United States among the elite who are going to say, OK, I have to do something about this. And we when that happens, we need to have their back, you know, and we need to have their back. And we need as many people that are socialists and want a socialist society to have their back. And that is that is the message of City Builders Day. And that is my message for you all today. And it's, it's a long, complicated speech. It's not something I can say in 10 seconds. You know, it's a long, complicated message. But it needs to be out there because this is so much of what the Center for Political Innovation is about. Um, so I just wanted to share that with everybody. And I, I want to let people know if you have questions for the second half, uh, we, I will answer your super chats. Um, so that's how it works. We have a few of them already. Um, but I, I do want to take a drink. I want to take my last unnamed diet beverage, start drinking water. Um, it's very hot in here, unfortunately. Mm. We're in Texas, right? It's starting to feel like Texas weather for once. <laughs> I, you know, it was very cold when I first came down here. I want to play this clip of Kamala Harris and just show you what we're dealing with. And then we'll start answering super chats and then that will be the end of our stream. So, all right. all right. So keep the super chats rolling in folks, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button. Make sure you hit that notifications bell. A lot of people in the chat are saying they didn't get notifications today. That's a bummer. We know they're suppressing our channel. So, you know, please, by all means, I want to let you know the video of our important conference is coming. Uh, you've already seen some of it, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. Yes, we had very high quality video, two cameras, HD, you know, oh, yeah. uh, and that video is coming. So hold your horses, folks. Don't worry. It's coming. Um, and all right. So. All right. So we got this clip of Kamala Harris, the great Kamala Harris today. Kamala Harris is not Julius Caesar. Let me just put it <laughs> that way. Uh, this is Kamala Harris today. I will say what I know we all say, and I will say over and over again. The United States stands firmly with the Ukrainian people in defense of the NATO alliance.
Now, what's wrong with that clip? What is wrong with that clip I just played? Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And that audience doesn't even seem to know it. Not only does she not know that, but the audience doesn't know that. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Who is giving her information about this crisis? I mean, we already heard Kamala Harris say that, you know, we heard the clip where she says that basically, you know, all you need to know about Ukraine and Russia is Russia big, Ukraine small, big attacking small, bad. That's, you know, and now she thinks Ukraine is in NATO. If Ukraine was in NATO, World War III would be happening, folks. That would be, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's, and, and the audience. I mean, I'm, I'm more disturbed by the audience. There's got to be smart people there who are like, wait, 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 Ukraine is not part. I mean, this is. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That was really something special. That was really, really something special. So there you go. All right. So why don't we start answering super chats? All right. First question. Analysis of QAnon from a Cesarean perspective. Sure. QAnon. um, Write that down. Uh, QAnon, I argue. I don't believe in QAnon. I don't think that there are satanic pedophiles, you know, spirit cooking people. And I, I don't I don't think that's the case. Um, I think that what's going on is there was a faction in the in the elite, in the intelligence agencies and in the Pentagon that's aligned with Trump. And they were trying to build kind of a mass movement to have their back. It was a bonapartist maneuver. It still exists. Right. And QAnon was some kind of attempt to build with a with a conspiracy theory and with the Q drops and attempt a group of people to be their foot soldiers. Right. Mm -hmm. We saw that. And then it appears to me that then the people, you know, that were against Trump also and kind of got into it and manipulated it. And that a lot of what happened on January 6th with those crazy QAnon people running around the Capitol and Buffalo head, mm. acting all crazy. And a lot of that was that, it, you know, basically I think that Trump's enemies also got in on QAnon and, and manipulated it to work in their favor. And there was a lot of confusion going on. And some people on January 6th went there and meant to do it. And some of them were being manipulated. I think that, you know, there was some element of false flag in there, but there was also some element of people just genuinely believing QAnon and wanting to do it. And we don't, we won't know. We won't know the answers um, until, until, until all of that comes out. That said, I do want to say that when it comes to, um, when it comes to QAnon, right? Okay. So like we, we know the elite of the United States are not literally satanic pedophiles, right? There's no secret, you know, satanic pedophile ring. There was Epstein, right? Epstein, was doing his thing and it was like underage women, right? So that was kind of a pedophile ring. So there's that. And that there are, you know, evil things that the ultra rich do. I mean, there's no question about that. The other thing is that there's a a precursor to QAnon called Pizzagate. You all remember Pizzagate? You remember Pizzagate? I, you know, I always assumed that Pizzagate was just a stupid right wing thing. And then I was watching Fox News one day and they were interviewing whoever that Comet Ping Pong guy is. Mm. And, you know, they're giving him a very sympathetic interview. All these crazy, you know, right wingers are attacking his pizza shop and all of that. And then he's like, yeah, I mean, he's like, I've got totally, totally innocent pictures on my Instagram, you know. And then he's like, yeah, just take a look at this picture on my Instagram. I mean, it's totally normal. And he shows this picture on his Instagram. And I about jumped off my couch. I saw this picture that he thought was a totally healthy picture on his Instagram of like a, a six-year-old child taped to the ground, like t- screaming and trying to get up. And I was just like, oh my God. And there's a number of those pictures from, from that pizza comet ping pong guy's Instagram that are really disturbing. It's like, you know, pedophile bondage porn or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's really disturbing. I mean, it's not the kind of healthy thing. It, I mean, if it was one picture, it was just like a prank or something, but a 
all these pictures the guy had on his Instagram were of children tied up, children being restrained and tr- screaming and trying to get away. That is creepy as shit. Absolutely. That's, that doesn't look normal. Now that's all I know. Obviously, you know, there's no basement at the place and you know, I mean, you know, I mean, they're not, you know, I mean, I mean, there's so much bullshit out there, but, but that alone, the fact that he thought, and the fact that he thought that was an innocent picture, mm. he's like, Oh, you know, show this picture to show how innocent I am. And they showed that. And I was just like, that is not an innocent picture, sir. And, and, you know, for a while his Instagram was up and he had loads of pictures like that with that same theme. That was really, really disturbing. So that made me think that there's something going on there. I don't know what it is. I, you know, and if you look at the emails, are they talking about cheese pizza? Like, really? Like, they just really like cheese pizza, mm. you know? And, and some people think cheese pizza is, is code for, like, child porn or, or cheese pizza is, like, code for, like, you know, money laundering or something's going on there. It ain't about cheese pizza and something's going on. That guy has a really creepy Instagram. But other than that, everything else I found is bullshit. I'll be real. Everything else I found is bullshit. When people are looking at like the symbols or like, come, come on, it's all ridiculous. I'm 99% of the stuff I've, I've read associated with Pizzagate is bullshit. But th- those two things, the Instagram and the cheese pizza and the emails makes me think there's something we don't know. Not saying I know what it is, but that guy, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to have him over for dinner. Let me just put it that way. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to hang out with Comet Ping Pong, dude. You know, and that makes me wonder, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we are going to find out all kinds of stuff. I mean, the Epstein thing, I mean, the amount of, of stuff out there about that, that has just kind of been ignored by the media, the amount of politicians who rode on his plane, who aren't in jail. And I mean, there's something going on there. But but the idea that they're all satanic pedophile. No, I don't buy that. Right. But in a way, it's like projection. Right. It's working. People know in their bones that the ruling class is evil. Okay, they know that they know these people have no loyalty to the country. They have no loyalty to any religion. All they care about is their money and their profits. They are destroying this country. They're waging wars for their profits. They're 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 evil. And so QAnon is like a way they can express that without Marxist ideology. We need to give them Marxist ideology so they can express it in scientific terms. But, you know, QAnon, Pizzagate, these are ways that Working people know that something is rotten in the state of Denmark, the way that they can express the alienation they feel. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's the enemy. I think it's wrong in a lot of cases, but I don't think it's the enemy. And that's kind of my position on that kind of thing. Um, and that's and then on top of that, I think QAnon is, is more of a like a it, it comes from the inside. It was an attempt to actually kind of mobilize something based on those sentiments. Um, you know, if you watch the Saxton lectures that I gave, I gave the Saxton lectures last spring. I can go watch them. You know, they've gotten thousands and thousands of views. Saxton Lecture 2.1. Um, I talked about how the bourgeois revolution has two sides, right? That, that when feudalism was being overthrown, on the one hand, you had this struggle for science. You had this feeling that we're going to be scientific, we're going to be rational. But then also among the bourgeois revolutionaries, there was this weird backwardness. There was this weird desire, like, instead of being more scientific and more rational, we're going to be more primitive and more spiritual and more, you know, I, you know, for example, I, I use the example, you know, joy to the world, great Christmas song, joy to the world. That song has nothing to do with Christianity. Listen to it. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. It has nothing to do with Christianity. It's clearly about, it's an Odinist song. It's about, you know, that, that Odin, the, the ancient god of Valhalla and Odin, 
He comes back to Earth once a year at Christmas time to breathe life back into the Earth and everything's dying in wintertime and to, you know, to welcome his coming. We put up the green, you know, holly because it's green all, all year round. And, you know, it's, it's the myth of Odin, right? It's, it's once a year, breathing life back into the Earth. That's what it's about. And, and there's a lot of weird things like that. At the time that capitalism was being overthrown, on the one hand, you had people that were saying, okay, we're going to be completely scientific now. The restraints of the Catholic Church, you know, that said, you know, you got burned at the stake if you said the earth was not the center of the universe, they're lifted. But then on the other hand, you have these people that said, oh, wow, now we want to go further backward. Uh, my, I, I believe the guy who came up with the heliocentric universe, you know, you know um, I think it was Copernicus. He argued the sun was the center of the universe. Mm. It's been revealed he was part of some kind of secret society that, that were sun worshippers, you know, and they were digging into like ancient pre, pre-Christian practices in Europe, worshipping the sun. So, you know, there was like a weird, you know, I mean, you had, um, uh, who was the guy who talked about the noble savages? There was this figure in the French Revolution, Voltaire or Rousseau. He had this idea that, that, that things were better before civilization. Right. And the primitive, what we call like anarcho primitivism and stuff, that's always been a weird tendency among the ruling class. They have always had, you know, some that want science and all that. But among like the ultra rich and all that, there's always been this weird belief that if we just have this big orgasmic explosion and, and we can go back to like hunter gatherer times mm. and uh, and that'll be better. And that'll be like the great correction. Right. And you see this among. Um, you know, I mean, like I, I've heard Bill Gates has made statements like this among some of these environmentalists, like the idea is there's too many people in the world. Civilization is bad. And we need like we need this big orgasmic climax. And then we'll go back to like, you know, hunter gatherer times and live in nature and it'll be so nice. And that is a that is that is, I would argue, a very dangerous mindset. It's rooted in Malthusianism. It's rooted in anti-humanism. And that a lot of the elite believe that. So if you think, if you want to say they're satanic, I mean, they're not literally worshiping Satan, but they do have this narrative in their mind that they see historical progress as bad. They want to go backward. They do have this kind of weird admiration for paganism and pre-Christian ideas. So I talked about that in the Saxton lectures a little bit. And, you know, I mean, this is a part of like the way you call the revolutionary intelligentsia. This is like Freudianism gets into this. And and the synthetic left, not scientific Marxism, but like anarchism, you know, and some of the bohemian middle class trends, you know, really tap into those kind of feelings. A lot of the, the occultist mindset, Aleister Crowley, uh, that kind of thing, you know, you know, practices that involve a lot of hypnotism, uh, for example, you know, the occultist kind of mindset. Some of that feeds into that kind of thinking. All right. What's the next question? All right. CPI Midwest Web. Well, the plan is. Uh, that we will do something in mid-May in Chicago. We are waiting for a, a number of things that are up in the air. But once we have uh, information, we will set a date. And, um, you know, volunteers are going to come to town and start building it. We may do it a little bit differently. There's a lot of things that need to be worked out between now and then. But the idea is late April, we'll start building for a mid-May conference in the Chicago area, somewhere in Chicago land. You know, might be in Indiana might be in Southern Michigan, might be in Illinois itself, might actually be in Chicago, but sometime in mid-May, we will have a, you know, we will have a conference in the Midwest. Um, but if you're located in the Midwest, we already have people there. The Students and Youth for a New America Club in Indiana, they sent me this beautiful picture when they all took, uh, they all took the pledge and joined, uh, joined uh, you know, in Evansville, Indiana, there's a, a nice chapter of Students and Youth for a New America. The Chicago Center for Political Innovation, the great people out there. You got Samuel Netton. Um, you know, who else do we have out there? You got uh, Dana Annex, uh, great violinist uh, who's with them. 
Uh, you've got uh, who else? I don't want to you know snub anybody and not say their name. You got Chris, Chris Mike, Chris Mikey or McKay, I think is his name. Gabby Hernandez, the great Gabby Hernandez. She's she's out there in Chicago. So we got a good good group of people out there in Chicago. We got a good group of people in Indiana. Um, I believe you know Lumpia Lumpia Logic, who's a, a member of this community, uh, a Filipino uh, activist, and uh, you know she she's in Iowa. And we we have people in the Midwest. We absolutely positively have people in the Midwest. Um, so, you know, I mean, you know, when we, when we can organize that Midwest, uh, gathering in Chicago, as soon as we can get a date for that and, and get resources together and everything, we will announce that. So that's happening. That is happening. Uh, it's just a matter of making sure everything's in order. So very exciting, very exciting. And any more super chats, send them our way because we got plenty to talk about. Next question. The reason for promoting Christian morality with the growth of productive forces through socialism will naturally make society more moral. Hmm. The reason for promoting Christian morality, if the natural growth of a society through productive forces will naturally make people more moral. Very good question. And this gets to the essence of one of the flaws in the dialectical materialist worldview. Karl Marx, in one of his letters to Frederick Engels, said it's really odd because according to my ideology, I'm completely unnecessary. Economic determinism, right? The proletariat just gets poorer and poorer and poorer, and in its own economic interest, starts organizing unions and eventually overthrows capitalism, right? And that there's no need for agency in Marxism, right? The idea is that everyone just kind of works in their natural economic interest, um, and eventually people, you know, they want to eat, they want better conditions, and, you know, just like feudalism was overthrown, just like slavery was overthrown, just like hunter gatherer civilization was replaced with agriculture and the dawn of private property, that eventually people will just see that it's in their economic interest to seize the means of production. And once that happens, then the means of production will no longer be restrained by the irrationality of greed. And that'll eventually lead to so much abundance, we can have a stateless classless world. Um, and uh, because of that, um, because of that, uh, you know, there's really no need to preach communism. There's really no need for communist activism. There's really no need for a vanguard. It's all just going to kind of naturally sort of happen. And that's called economic determinism and historical inevitability. And it's one of the strongest criticisms of the Marxist philosophy that is out there, because according to it, there's no reason Marx should never have written the Communist Manifesto. He could have just sat back and smoked a cigar, um, you know, uh, could have just sat back and smoked a cigar. Another one there, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, all he all he had to do was just, uh, you know, just, just sit back and there you go. Now, uh, you know, that leads to the question that, yes, in history, you need people like Che Guevara. You need people like Karl Marx. You need a proletarian movement. And there is an element of agency in human history. And that ideas and the mind, to some degree or other, does create reality, right? The, the materialist conception, Engels says, I, you know, instead of, you know, I believe it was Immanuel Kant who said, I think, therefore I am. And mm -hmm. then... Engels says, no, I am. Therefore, I think. I think, uh, you, know, uh, you know, thought is inseparable from matter that thinks. And to some degree or other, this is why I'm not a solid materialist, because, you know, there's a reason I do these streams. Right? I don't think it's just going to naturally happen. People have to take initiative. People have to, and individuals in history can play a role. And that, that the strictly Marxist dialectical materialist worldview says there's no reason to preach any morality. There's no reason to preach Marxism. There's no reason to appeal to people to be good at all because everything just kind of naturally flows from everyone's economic interest. And that's not true, right? People have relationships with each other. 
Um, uh, people have relationships with each other and people, people have to make choices and there is agency in the universe. And that's where I am not a strict dialectical materialist. I do believe in God. I do have a moral compass. I do, I do believe right and wrong exists. I do admire people like Joan of Arc and Rosa Parks and, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and Che Guevara and Ho Chi Minh and people that make great acts of bravery and sacrifice for the cause of right and do so against, often against their own direct material interests. I, I admire such people and that Marxism, classical, strict dialectical materialist worldview, doesn't really have room for that. And that I, I would argue, and I've said this before, that, all right, so in feudalism, in feudalism, everything was spiritual. Right. It was all about religion, you know, obey the landlord or the, or the feudal hierarchy or else you go to hell. The God, God ordained the king to rule over us. Everything was defined in spiritual terms. Everything was religious. Everything was wrapped in mysticism. You know, Marx in the Communist Manifesto, he talks about man, you know, is bound to his natural superior, you know, and that. And then capitalism and the overthrow of feudalism comes along and it says, well, no, we're going to have science. We're going to have reason. We're going to get rid of all these mystical hierarchies and traditions. And Marxism originates in the like the the the, the last breaths of the, the struggle to bring down feudalism in Europe. I mean, the, the 1848 German Revolution was the definitive moment in Marxism. So Marx comes along and he's like, "Well, we're scientific socialists, right? We're, we we don't have any you know religious utopianism, and we're scientific." And okay, and it's like I feel like there was a little bit of an overcorrection, right? Feudalism had just hammered everything in this mystical obey your leaders religion religious power, emotions. And so the Enlightenment comes along and the bourgeois revolutions come along and the overthrow of feudalism and they're coming along and we're rational, completely rational and materialism and everything. And to some degree or other, to some degree or other, um, and thank you, Atari, for your, for your great super chat. And, and it was a great conference, I'll tell you that much. Um, it was a great conference and, and Marxism comes along and says, we're going to be completely rational and, and scientific. And that this was a weakness of Marxism. And this is actually very interesting. So, you know, you have the crisis of Marxism, right? You know, that, that, you know, Marx comes along, he lives, he dies, he builds labor unions, he starts the Marxist movement. And then after Marx's death, Marxism just flourishes all across Europe, all across Europe. You have Marxist parties forming, labor unions are forming, Marxists are getting elected to parliament, Marxist marching bands and choirs and schools. And Marxism was everywhere in Europe and in the United States. And, you know, like the most popular book in the United States was Looking Backward, this novel about how the USA was going to become a socialist paradise by the year 2000. And socialism was everywhere, but the revolution wasn't happening. And Lenin had the correct understanding about why that was. It was because of imperialism, because certain sections of the working class, because capitalism was moving into the monopoly stage of imperialism, were starting to get so much, you know, their, their living standard was going up, and so they were becoming less revolutionary. However, there's another thinker, and this is where it gets really interesting. There's a thinker who was actually a big influence on fascism, George Sorrell. Uh, George Sorrell, the anarchist uh, and revisionist Marxist syndicalist George Sorrell comes along. And George Sorrell, he's critiquing the French socialist movement. He's saying, look, you know, you guys are have been out there. Socialism's everywhere, but I'm not seeing a revolution. And George Sorrell comes along and he's not critiquing things in material terms. He's saying there's a spiritual problem. He's saying revolutions, you know, you, you, your Marxist groups are everywhere. Every neighborhood's got a bunch of socialists in it. You got your labor unions and all that. You're getting people elected to parliament. But revolutions, he argues, are not made by the broad masses of people. They're made by the 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 heroic elite, 
that there's a group of people in society who who want to give everything for the cause, want to go out and sacrifice, want to give their whole of their lives to this. And they desire, they desire to be heroic and they want to make great sacrifices. They want to tear down the old order. And most people aren't capable of being them. But when they get into motion with their heroism, they inspire the masses of people. And that Marx and his idea that we're just going to build, you know, we're just going to build this broad group of people that work in their economic interest, that's not capturing the imagination, right? And that's George Sorrell, and he comes along. And George Sorrell, you know, he actually, he's, he's trying, he's saying that basically that Marxism is not capturing the spiritual energy of Europeans. So he's coming along, and he actually becomes a monarchist, right? He's saying that basically, you know, the, the, the mystical admiration of the French monarchy will inspire the proletariat. And in the name of Marxism, he's actually embracing a lot of very conservative ideas, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the time of George Sorrell's death, uh, he dies in like 1922. He writes this obit, he writes, he's writing, he's basically like some of his last articles. He's saying that Bolshevism in Russia with its vanguard party, the party of a new type, is proof that he was right. But he's also saying that Benito Mussolini and fascism in Italy are, are also proof that he was right. And that both of them, the revolutions that are happening, the rise of fascism in Italy and the Bolshevik movement, are both showing that his critique of Marxism, that it was this kind of stale economist movement, was correct, and that the revolutions, the changes being made by vanguards, right? And I think that's a very fascinating critique. And I mean, I, I've been reading Lenin for years, but when I discovered Sorel, I think he's on to something. The problem is that Sorel is reactionary. Hmm. Sorel is saying, okay, in order to capture this spiritual energy and power, we need to go back to full-on conservative ideas like monarchism, like anti-Semitism, you know, et cetera. And that's, I don't agree with that, obviously. I believe in historical progress. And he basically is rejecting the notion of historical progress and arguing that revolutionary anti-capitalist movements need to tap into tap into kind of ancient mystical traditions. Right. And that's that's Mussolini actually said that George Sorrell was his greatest inspiration. Interesting. Lenin and Sorrell never talked. I don't know. There's no record. But George Sorrell thought that Lenin's theory of the vanguard party, and the party of new type was kind of a confirmation. I think that George Sorrell's answers were wrong, but his critique was correct. And I think he's right that that just plain economic determinism does actually does actually have this stale effect. And it wasn't simply, I mean, yes, the labor aristocracy, I think Lenin's economic analysis is the primary reason the Marxist movement was failing in Europe, but there was a spiritual question that was being missed. And that, that Sorrell was right in saying that there is, you know, that if you're not tapping into people's desire to be heroic and revolutionary, if it's all just kind of, hey, work in your own economic interest, it'll all just naturally happen you're not gonna unleash people's heroic power. And there's a reason that the, the Bolsheviks formed their party of a new type. And that a lot of the Bolsheviks in the party of a new type, when it started in the Bolshevik party, were not working in their economic interests. They were from wealthy families, but they were looking for some kind of spiritual fulfillment. They wanted to feel heroic. They wanted to feel like they were on the right side of history, et cetera. And that, that, that you know, that among, even, in, even in Europe, even in Marxist time, a lot of the people who were attracted to his ideas were not average working class proletarians, they were people that, you know, that it wasn't in their economic interest, but they were looking for some kind of psychological, they were looking for something spiritual or psychological in Marxism. And so that's a fair critique. And that's why, Chaya, when you raise that about like why preach morality, you're getting to one of the biggest flaws in the Marxist-Leninist ideology, which is that, that, it, that it kind of misses this, that there is agency in history, thoughts matter, ideas matter, 
you know, beliefs matter, you know, keep, there's a reason we're doing these streams and that this is one of the flaws in the, the strict ML worldview. What do you think of that, Ben? I think it's fascinating. I wish we had a couple more hours to discuss it. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. But all right, next question. Next question. Do you think LaRouche would have abolished the British Empire if he had won the election? I'm not a LaRouchean. You know, I love Daniel, who spoke at our con conference, was an amazing, amazing guy. He's a friend of mine. I've been over to his house. He has two beautiful children. He's got an amazing wife. And he has given his life to fighting against the free market system. That's what they mean when they say British Empire. They mean free trade, Adam Smith, neoliberal economics. He's pro-China. He's pro-Russia. He wants to build the world land bridge. I was honored that he came and gave a great talk at our conference. But I'm not a LaRouchean. LaRouche ultimately moved away from Marxism. In the, in the early 80s, LaRouche moved away from the Marxian worldview and embraced their own kind of view. I still, my views are founded in Marxism, right? And I view the world between capitalism and communism, the working class and the capitalist class. That's not how they see things. Um, and, and when you ask, would he have abolished the British empire? I think LaRouche has kind of, he dedicated his life to putting forward the idea that neoliberalism is bad, that free markets are bad. That's what LaRouche was dedicated to. He did not believe in free market capitalism. And that, you know, back when he was a Marxist, when he was a Trotskyite Marxist, he saw that what you can call the movement, the people using drugs and marching against the Vietnam War, was controlled by free market forces. That, that you know, the CIA was distributing drugs. He was anti-drugs his whole life. He, he, you know, was against, you know, like, you know, sexual promiscuity. He wanted people to live more of a, a traditional life or the traditional marriage, etc. And he saw the new left. And he knew that it was being funded by intelligence agencies, by the Ford Foundation, and the same forces that were pushing neoliberal economics and promoting Ayn Rand, like the Ford Hall Forum and the Rockefeller think tanks that brought us Milton Friedman, were also pushing the new left, which was moving away from class struggle and for the people and, and all that and focusing on this kind of cultural liberalism or whatever. And so that's what kind of pushed LaRouche in the direction that he went. He saw that the new left was fake, and it was. The new left was fake. And he saw that early on, and that kind of pushed him to ultimately move against Marxism. And because he was so against the new left, that led him to kind of an alliance with the Republicans and Reagan. And, and obviously, I don't endorse, especially a lot of the stuff he did in the 80s. I, I mean, especially a lot of the stuff he said about the Soviet Union is completely abhorrent to me. He was definitely not a friend of the Soviet Union, definitely not a Marxist. Um, but he believed in the state controlling the means of production. I mean, he wouldn't use those words, but he believed the government should organize the economy to serve the people. And he believed that free trade was bad. And he understood that the new left was not revolutionary. And so those are things I can take from LaRouche that I can respect. Uh, the rest, you know, and I've read a lot of it. I'll tell you that. I've got, I've got a stack of LaRouche books at my house. It's funny, when they published, uh, they're publishing volumes and volumes now, the selected works of Lyndon LaRouche now that he's dead. And so I bought volume one and I was so disappointed because every book in volume one, I already own. So there's like no material. It's like a waste of money, right? I mean, it's not a waste of money. I'm glad to have it. And I'll buy volume two when it comes out. Hopefully there's some books I haven't read in there, but I've read LaRouche's stuff and I, I can respect him on some level. And the fact that he, he really fought back against free trade and the British empire. And he, you know, I mean, he, he gained a lot of influence and I will say he wasn't a friend of the Soviet union, but he was a friend of China. Like, Really early on in the 80s, he started going over there and he loved Deng Xiaoping. And he was also a big friend of Iraq and Ba'athist Arab socialism. Mm. Saddam Hussein and him, like he was over there with Saddam Hussein. He was over in Syria and they had like international, like 
like Middle East wide Ba'ath conferences where like all the Ba'athist parties of every Arab country would come and Lyndon LaRouche would be like the keynote speaker. I mean, it was like he had a lot of influence in the Arab world. Um, So I can respect Lyndon LaRouche and he did not deserve to go to jail. I, I repeat what I said at the conference yesterday. He should be exonerated. But at the same time, his worldview is not my worldview. And I mean, I'm a Marxist and and I wouldn't frame things in terms of the British Empire versus mm. versus I, th- I see things as capitalism versus socialism and neoliberal capitalism versus uh, versus, you know, fighting for the people and a government of action to fight for working families. I have a different orientation. I, I see myself as getting back to what the Communist Party stood for when it was really a revolutionary organization. But William Z. Foster and Gus Hall and. And, uh, you know, and, and Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Claudia Jones and Paul Robeson. That's what I stand for. If you want to know where I stand, read William Z. Foster, maybe read some Sam Morrissey. You know, and LaRouche has been an influence on me, but I'm not a LaRouche. You know, I'm not a LaRoucheist, I should say. Right. I have my own view. Um, so I, I, if you're asking me to clarify on that, would he have changed things? I guess. I mean, LaRouche was not going to win the presidential election. He was always, quote unquote, French. He was just, you know, but I will say he was more influential than most, quote unquote, fringe groups. More people voted for LaRouche than they ever voted for the Workers' World Party or the Socialist Workers' Party or and all of that. They, in the 80s, they were gaining quite a bit of influence. And their program was to reindustrialize the country, to build new bridges and highways, to have the government spend money on infrastructure, to block NAFTA and these trade deals that wreck the country. So... I mean, in in their mind, that would have been standing up to free trade and Milton Friedman and neoliberalism. So in, in that sense, I guess you could say yes. But I mean, he wasn't going to win. And there you go. That's a long answer. I'm giving long answers. We haven't gotten very many super chats. Uh, so I'm giving long answers today. So if you want a long answer, now's the time to ask me a super chat because today I'm giving long winded answers. Sometimes I have like so many super chats. I just have to go boom, boom, boom. Not today. Not today. So that's OK. Next question. <clears throat> Suggestion, basic channel rules. Oh, yeah. Well, look, I mean, we have so many mods who do a great job in the chat. I have modded so many people. And that's good because we had a raid on this channel one time. Like we had a sticks and hammer. The libertarian sent like thousands of his followers on here to just raid at one time. We get people who come in here and just post the N word over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. And we just, you know, all kinds of childishness. So it's really good that we have mods. Generally, you know, if people are on here insulting people, if people are on here smearing me or insulting or disrespecting other members of the community, uh, they get they get removed. You know what I mean? If people are on here promoting anti-Semitism or hate or bigotry, if people are on here to cause problems, get them out. But if people just want to disagree or people just have questions, they're welcome. But basically, I mean, that's kind of as far as this channel works. If you're if you're on here to seriously engage with what I have to say, welcome. If you're on here to tear other people down, to attack me, to attack other people, get out of here, right? And, and the mods are great. They do a great job. I, I have full faith in my mods. And if, and if there's a mod who I think is not doing good, I'll demod. I don't think I've ever demodded anyone before, though. So I think, I think so far, every mod, I, I choose my mods carefully. We've got a decent crew. There's at least 20 of them now, you know, 20 of them. But if you're on here consistently, I see you in the chat and you're doing a good job and you feel like someone I can trust, I can mod you. And for some reason, I mod women more than I trust women more than men. I'll just be honest. You know, women, I feel like there's an element of like, I don't know why women, women are more responsible than men about this kind of thing. I don't know why that is, but for whatever reason. So I tend to mod women more than men. So there you oh. go. So um, we got that. Okay. okay. All right. All right. But write it down. I mean, I'll, I'll respond to that. And then we got another one. Um, all right. So there we go. After you get those two down, we'll do it to the next one. Okay. 
Yeah, we're we're about a, an hour and 42 minutes in, so we'll just keep going. So the next one's about the petrodollar. All right. Very, very, very good. Um, all right. <clears throat> Did Stalin maneuver against the global world order? Okay, so again, what do you mean by global world order? Are you talking about the economic system of imperialism, which is the rule of the world by monopolistic capitalist corporations, capitalism in its monopoly stage. And if that's the case, yes, Stalin did. I don't use, I mean, globalist world order is kind of, um, that's kind of like right-wing terminology. I see things in terms of Marxism, but imperialism, the rule of the world by big banks and corporations based in the United States and Western Europe, they're keeping the world poor in order to make themselves rich. Um, Stalin did fight against those people. Uh, he started, Stalin started China on the course of independent economic development. Uh, it was Stalin who, you know, facilitated and worked with, with Mao Zedong and, you know, offered military training to China, to, you know, and ultimately supported China in their fight against Japan. It was Stalin, uh, you know, who built the, the world communist movement that eventually, you know, led to amazing things like the Cuban revolution, like, you know, Stalin that, you know, I mean, wiped it. I mean, so many countries in Eastern Europe, so many countries. Um, I think they mean Schiller Institute. The Biller. I don't I don't think he was ever part of that. But anyway, um, but but anyway, uh, but you can write it down. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it was Stalin who really changed the world. You want to talk about a, a person who changed the world, you know. Um, claims that Eurasian and Pat's talk is fascist. All right. Yeah. Um, you know that. That Stalin, I mean, there wouldn't be a civil rights movement in the United States if it wasn't for Stalin. Stalin made the black struggle like a focus, right? He highlighted, you know, you know, the oppression of black people in the United States. Uh, I, I will never forget, I had a history teacher uh, and he knew I was interested in communism in high school. So he brought me a newspaper clipping, he photocopied it from my town, my little town in Ohio in like 1951. They'd had the headline in their newspaper, in the newspaper in my little town was, take that Uncle Joe. And what it was about was that a black family had bought a house in my town. And they had a quote at the beginning of the article. Stalin said, racism in America is awful, the oppression of black people. And they said, well, that's clearly not true. This black family bought a house in Morville, Ohio. So clearly there's no racism and that Stalin doesn't know what he's talking about. But it's like, you, you, I mean, you know, the fact that in 1954, after Stalin had died, when Emmett Till was lynched, that the Soviet Union took that photograph of his mutilated body and sent it all over the world. Uh, That's huge. Uh, and the impact that communism had on the global struggle, you know, until the Soviet Union, I must say this, until the Soviet Union, until the Soviet Union, there was, you know, the idea that one race is superior to another race was just kind of taken for granted, especially in Europe. And it was the Soviet Union and the formation of the UN. The reason the UN condemns racism is because of the Soviet Union. It was the Soviet Union that kind of introduced into the global movement and pushed hard enough into the global movement that became accepted that racism is not a cool thing. That racism, you know, there would be, I mean, you don't know the impact the Soviet Union had. Did you know that women had the right to vote in the Soviet Union before they got the right to vote in the United States? Yep. You know, I mean, the, the impact that, that the Soviet Union had on global history is astronomical. And Stalin was the leader of the Soviet Union when it was at its height of strength and influence. So, you know, I, I think that that's what we need to understand. All right. So, all right. We got a lot of super chats here. I'm going to start giving shorter answers now that we have so many super chats. That's okay. Um, so, so the next question, 
Talk about Mao's letter to Martin Luther King. Wasn't a letter to Martin Luther King. It was a statement that he wrote in support of the civil rights movement in the United States. It was published in 1963 at the request of Robert F. Williams. Robert F. Williams was the leader of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina. Uh, he was protesting for the right of black people to swim. Um, you know, um, I don't even know what that means, but anyway, uh, you know, uh, you know, he was he was protesting for the right of, of black people to swim in their own swimming pools. Um, and, uh, you know, he, the Ku Klux Klan shot at him. He shot back. And so they fled to Monroe, North Carolina, um, or they fled Monroe, North Carolina. And Robert F. Williams fled to Cuba and to China. And after Robert F. Williams met with Mao, he asked Mao to write a statement in support of the civil rights movement in the United States and in support of the 1963 March on Washington. So in 1963, you had the historic March on Washington where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. Um, and before that march, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, you know, I mean, that led that march. There was a, a letter, or it wasn't a letter, it was a document, like a statement, an official statement written by Mao, uh, written by Mao, um, that was um that was called um that that was called like on the civil rights movement in the United States and the struggle of black people or something like that. Um, and it was published, and uh, and then the Workers' World Party, uh, the Sam Marcy Workers' World Party, they're the ones that distributed it at the at the at the march. At the, the march, they distributed like twenty thousand copies of it to people attending that march. After Martin Luther King Jr. died, Mao wrote another statement called "On the Assassination of Dr. Martin," um, which was like about how even though Dr. Martin Luther King believed in nonviolence, the imperialists still murdered him, and this shows how ruthless U.S. imperialism is, et cetera. So. Mm. There you go. Next question. Next question. Not sure if serious, but exonerate Bill Clinton and Bill Cosby anti-British fighters. Bill Clinton was definitely not an anti-British fighter. He pushed neoliberalism like crazy. I mean, it's not a question of being anti-British. In my mind, it's a question of, you know, anti, anti-free market, free trade, anti-imperialism. Bill Clinton was definitely not that. Destroyed Yugoslavia, bombed Iraq, murdered people with sanctions. On top of that, Bill Clinton pushed neoliberalism, NAFTA in the United States, destroying the welfare system, throwing all kinds of low-income mothers off welfare in the United States. Bill Clinton was an awful president, in my view. Um, you know, now Bill Clinton. I think it's a little bit interesting that Bill Clinton. You know, he was not a he was a Democrat, but he was very much he was more in with the neocons than most Democrats. You know, Carter, Carter, Jimmy Carter had been the previous Democratic president. He had come out of that Brzezinski school. And that's where Obama and Biden come out of. They're like Brzezinskiites. Bill Clinton was much more of a Democrat who was in with the neocons, which is a little bit interesting, right? So Bill Clinton governed a little bit different than Biden does. He governed a little bit different than Obama does. Definitely wasn't Jimmy Carter. But Bill Clinton was, was awful. I mean, his whole thing was he brought neoliberal economics into the Democratic Party. The Republican Party had thoroughly embraced the teachings of Milton Friedman and, and Ayn Rand and Friedrich von Hayek and all of that. But it was it was Bill Clinton with his Democratic Leadership Council that brought neoliberal economics into the Democratic Party. Bill Clinton was basically uh, he was the um, he was the kind of the mirror to new labor. Right. So in Britain, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, the Labor Party claims falsely to be a socialist party. Um, you know, and it said they had clause four in their like manifesto or their constitution or their bylaws or whatever it was called clause four that said we in the you know the Labor Party we advocate a society where the means of production are controlled by the people. Well, you know, um, Tony Blair came along and got rid of clause four, and he came along and and just like Bill Clinton, Tony Blair was a brilliant orator and he sounded like a populist. Tony Blair, you know, you listen to Tony Blair talk, like listen to a Tony Blair speech, great speaker. 
maybe on there, some people in Britain are having trouble getting by. Mm. It bothers me. As a British person, I don't want any mother to be, I mean, he sounded like a populist, but the whole thrust of his career was privatizations, neoliberalism, cutback. Bill Clinton was like that. He comes along. You know, I come from a little place called home, and I'm fighting for the poor people against the big corporations, tax cuts for the, it sounds like a populist. I mean, I mean, mm -hmm. I, you can bet, you can bet that Bill Clinton studied Huey Long. He had like videos of Huey Long talking. Right. He studied it. He sounded like a Southern populist. He sounded like, like a Southern populist, but the thrust of what Bill Clinton did was push neoliberalism. And it was the same thing. The Demi he said, you know, Bill Clinton said that the DLC, the Democratic Party is stuck in the old far left ways. We've got to get back to average Americans. Tony Blair comes along. The world has changed, but the Labour Party hasn't. We're believing in outdated concepts like class struggle. You know, it was this, it, they were both very charismatic guys, very charismatic guys, but they were a wolf in sheep's clothing. They, mm. were, they, were, they could do the populism thing way better, way better than other people, but they didn't actually believe in it. They were pushing it, you know, in a phony way. That's what I maintain. You know, Bill Clinton, you know, uh, interesting fact, if you go see the movie American Made starring Tom Cruise, uh, they, they reveal Bill Clinton's role in the CIA drug contra scandal in Nicaragua which is awesome. I mean, it, it's awesome. They show that in the film, how basically the CIA like had a drug running facility in Arkansas when Bill Clinton was governor. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. The, the, like, the drug smuggling operation that was bringing crack into the United States was based in Arkansas. There was like an air base and it's like CIA, this, this like former airline pilot who was recruited by the CIA. And it's all fictionalized in the movie with Tom Cruise, but it basically shows that Arkansas with Bill Clinton as governor was the base of the CIA contra gun drug running operation. It's kind of, Fascinating. Bill Clinton's been, you know, he was a shill from the beginning. Um, you know, and what's interesting is like Republicans will talk about there are things that Bill Clinton, like if you when people talk about his family, right? Like Chelsea Clinton, the story goes, and this, I believe this. I, I believe every word of this, right? Oh, Don, Don, these impressions. <laughs> Thank you, Don. Thank you, Don. Don is awesome. Uh, but uh, you know, I believe this. Supposedly, Chelsea Clinton, when she was like a kid, she told her, um, she told her um uh, you know, her personal like private security guard. She called him a pig, you know, and he was like, hey, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm keeping you safe or whatever. And she said, well, my mom and dad call you guys pig, you know, and I, you know, that the Republicans use that to be like, oh, they're anti-cop or whatever. I think that's totally true. You know, I think, you know, if you look at Bill and Hillary, they were like dope smoking, hedonistic, new left kind of, mm. you, know, you know, and the, yeah, they, the, the hippie stuff they were into. So the idea that they would call the Secret Service pigs. You know, and they might be frustrated. I can imagine, you know, if your secret service is like always telling you you can't go here, you can't go there, it probably gets frustrating after a while. Can't I just go to McDonald's? No, not until we clear the place, Mr. President. God damn it, these pigs. But, you know, but that's kind of, they had this kind of new left hip attitude, right? And they also didn't have respect for the people like keeping them safe. They're, they're very like elitist, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these dumb guys who have to, you know, prevent me from getting shot. You know, shows it's like, you know, basically the attitude that Bill and Hillary Clinton had toward the secret service was this is the hell. You know, this is the hell, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I can see that, but they were never Marxist. They were never leftist. They were not, you know, revolutionaries, but there was this kind of like new left, like pigs, man, you know. Yeah, and you know, Bill Clinton, you know, he, he smoked weed, but he didn't inhale. Oh, I mean, come on, he probably inhaled. He probably snorted too. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the other thing about about the Clintons that I, I find to be amusing, right? Um, what was it? There was something else I was going to say about the Clintons. I can't remember. But, you know, I mean, you look into into it. Yeah, they do have this kind of attitude. Oh, oh, when they were governor, when Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas, this is amazing. Hillary Clinton admitted this before she ran for president. She wrote this book like it was hard choices, about hard choices she'd made in her life. I think it's, in, it's either in hard choices or one of her other books. She talks about how when Bill was governor of Arkansas, 
they had the idea, why don't we just have some of the uh, prisoners be our slaves in the governor's mansion? And they had a whole bunch of black prisoners, men and women, wait on them hand and foot. You know, not getting paid, right? They used to be at the governor's mansion. Yeah, they'd have like people who cleaned and cooked for them, but they would be paid a wage. And instead, they just got prison labor. And so they had black prisoners waiting on them hand and foot. It was like the governor's mansion in Arkansas when Bill Clinton uh, was was running Arkansas was like a slave plantation, you know, and he, Bill Clinton was the massa, you know, I mean, it was, was that was what was going on. I mean, it's horrible. Right. And, 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 and I think Hillary Clinton like put that out there right before her presidential campaign, just so you guys know, because they knew that might, you know, hurt her now that we're woke in the United States. We don't like that kind of thing. That was Bill Clinton. But you also also remember that Bill Clinton in a lot of ways, you know, nowadays the democratic party is all woke, but Bill Clinton's presidential campaign in 1992 was very much not only an attack on on economic leftism, it was a racial counter-revolution in a lot of ways. Bill Clinton, he, he ranted against a rapper named Sister Soja, right? He was invited by Jesse Jackson to speak at this like civil rights event. And the night before they'd had this rapper called Sister Soja speak. And so Bill Clinton used his speech to rant against this, this, this rapper, Sister Soja, and how she was quote unquote anti-white and was disrespecting police officers and like, it was all. And, and then the other thing is that in Arkansas, when Bill Clinton was the governor, you know, they had the prison, but they started like a prison labor thing, like a chain gang. Maybe you started the chain gang. And Bill Clinton actually had a commercial. Like, I kid you not, a commercial with him posing with prison chain gangs. He's like, here in Arkansas, we believe in being tough on crime. I may be a Democrat, but, you know, when people break, people do dumb. They got to do the time. I mean, it was like it was very much an F you. It was not just an economic you know, counter-revolution. It was an you to the civil rights movement. So, you know, and and that's, you know, all of that doesn't fit Hillary Clinton's like kind of woke image that she's got now. So there you mm. go. Um, and Bill Cosby, I mean, look, it's kind of interesting. So uh, I'll just touch on the Bill Cosby thing. I mean, I, as far as I can tell, he's absolutely guilty. People knew it for years. I don't think he's innocent in any, I mean, you know, I don't think he's innocent at all, but I mean, I think he was definitely a predator. And I've often used that as an example, you know, if in the eighties or nineties, when I was a kid, if you walked around and said, you know, Bill Cosby's a pervert, he gives women drugs and then rapes them. People would have looked at you and been like, that's insane. Mm -hmm. But sometimes things that seem obvious, you know, obvious, like Bill Cosby's America's dad are not the case. Sometimes things are not as they seem, you know, everybody knows communism failed everywhere it's ever been tried. Everybody knows the United States is the best country in the world. Everybody knows Bill, you know, Bill Cosby's America's dad and just lovable, lovable guy who would never hurt a fly. Well, now we know. Uh, but the other thing about Bill Cosby, it's funny, is that I remember when Bill Cosby, you know, they, he, he went on a rant against the black community. Like, um, uh, please undelete Wobacon. Okay, I don't know what's I don't know what that means, but anyway, um, you know, um, uh, you know, he went on a rant against the black community. He gave this kind of like you know personal responsibility rant. Mm. And I remember I was like in high school, I was around like the RCP Bob Avakian people, mm. and they were like always like they made it their mission to like you know protest Bill Cosby. It was kind of hilarious. Like they were like you know f Bill Cosby or something. It was a little little odd, but he was considered right wing back then. But now we know all the details about it. Next question. Next question. Thoughts on Saudi Arabia possibly moving to the wand for oil and uh, the death of the petrodollar and its impact on the working class. Okay, and you got that one. All right, very good. All right. So, all right. So, um, the petrodollar is how the United States dominates the world. If you trade oil, you got to do it in dollars. Saudi Arabia uh, is in a bit of a crisis as a country because they were the, you know, the Western capitalist oil companies, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron. They were the Western capitalist oil companies. Uh, they were their they were their oil supplier, and 
now, um, now at this point, uh, was Michael Jackson framed? Uh, that's a weird questions about sexual predators. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, it's an odd, yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, but I'll answer that. Um, uh, you know, um, there was, um, you know, you know, Saudi Arabia is in a crisis because right now in the United States, we have energy independence because of fracking. The United States is the world's top producer of oil because of hydraulic fracking, because of deep sea drilling. If Saudi Arabia were to cut off the United States in oil, it would cause problems, but it, the United States wouldn't shut down. It wouldn't be like the 70s where the, the OPEC boycott, you know, caused the United States, you know, the, the gas stations all shut down. And there was like, you know, that wouldn't be like that. You know, the United States could have a situation where at this point we're a net exporter of oil, not a net importer. Um, and because of that, we produce enough oil to sustain ourselves here in the United States. Saudi Arabia is no longer as valuable as the United States. And the USA knows that. And I think, you know, Trump was in the faction that was pro Saudi Arabia. Um, Trump was in the faction that was pro Saudi Arabia. And um, what was it? And, um, uh, you know, you know, Biden it seems to be anti Saudi Arabia, but he's still arming them. So he's not really anti Saudi Arabia, but the Jamal Khashoggi thing, there are divisions within the deep state when it comes to Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is exploring more independence right now. And their relationship with Russia is expanding. Their relationship with China is expanding. They're realizing the USA doesn't need them like it once did. Um, I know that the crown prince, Bin Salman, is like exploring. He's like, like experimenting, like, could I try to study Singapore and model Saudi Arabia on Singapore? But, you know, I mean, it's it, Saudi Arabia is a very authoritarian. Saudi Arabia is actually a great example of state capitalism, right? You know, people often say to me, well, Caleb, you want the state to control the means of production. That's state capitalism. No, no, it's. No, it's not. I want the means of production to be operated for the benefit of society, right? That's what I want. I want the means of production to serve the people, uh, you know, a popular government and revolutionary communities controlling the means of production. State capitalism is like Saudi Arabia, where the state, the means of production still function according to profits. Those oil rigs are still operated to make profits for the Saudi royal family. Uh, the whole Saudi economy is centered around making profits for like the bin Laden family that has a state monopoly on construction. It's a profit-centered economy. A third of the country are guest worker slaves, for example, but the government is heavily involved in facilitating, right? And that's like Singapore. Singapore is state capitalism also. It's a for-profit economy. There's four families that run Singapore. The government is heavily involved in enforcing their monopoly, but it's still a for-profit economy. You know, it's not like the, the, the government is not controlling the means of production, forcing the economy to work in the interest of the people. The government is controlling the means of production and forcing them to work in the interest of four families who are extracting profits and that's state capitalism, mm -hmm. right? Um, so there you go. Next, Next question. question. Claims that Eurasianism and patriotic socialism are fascist. Well, no, no. I mean, fascism, I, I wish you had a scientific understanding of fascism. Um, but well, you're, they are asking for your opinion. Okay. Well, first of all, Eurasianism is uh, is a theory that long. I mean, it's it's basically the idea that, that there are two different civilizational models: the Atlanticist model and the Eurasian model. Um, and it's it's been around for a long time. It's a geopolitical school of thought. Dugan comes out of that, and he's like the voice of it in Russia. But it's really long long standing. Eurasianism is just the belief that that the East, Russia, and China. Their societies function in a different way because they don't have access to the ocean. Right? Hmm. They've, they've developed in more of a collectivist way because they don't have access to the ocean. Whereas the West, the United States, you know, Western Europe, we've developed in a different way because we have access, we have ocean access. Mm -hmm. We're like more ocean based. That's all it is. And I, I would say actually it started with the British. Uh, it was actually there was a guy, I forget his name, but he was kind of the father of geopolitics who was an Atlanticist. And he argued 
the British civilization is so great because we have a big navy and we can use our navy to dominate the world. It's considered the first work of geopolitism, of geopolitics. And it was, it was like the British came up with this and it was their theory of Atlanticism. And then in Russia, you know, with Catherine the Great and others, you said, well, maybe they've got the Atlanticist system and we've got the Eurasian system. And it's just a form of, of thought. And yeah, Dugan talks about it, but all kinds of people talk about this. I, there's a book called The Revenge of Geography that's written by like a Council on Foreign Relations person. And it's a book with this theory as well. It's just a, a theory about how civilizations develop. I don't like the term Eurasianism. I would say continentalism. Because I believe that in the United States, we have, you know, I mean, we're here in Texas, right? I mean, you know, in the heartland of America, there is a lot of people that aren't thinking like, let's be part of a global trade route with the ocean. So I don't even like the term Eurasianism. And Dugan thinks all kinds of stuff that have nothing to do with that. That's what Eurasianism is. That's not fascism. That's just whatever. That's a geopolitical theory. Uh, patriotic socialism is the idea that we present socialism not as tear it down, burn it down, destroy the country, but rather we're going to use socialist methods to make a better life. And we appeal to working people in their economic interests. That's not fascism. Fascism is about dividing people. Fascism is about tearing people down. It's about you know taking individual groups and penalizing them, punishing them. Fascism is, you know, capitalism in decay. It's a form of bonapartism where the capitalist state, you know, Basically, basically tries to stabilize the economy with a mobilization of destruction, you know, concentration camps, militarizations and stuff. That's not what we advocate. So it's not fascism, right? Fascism is not flags. Fascism is not patriotism. Fascism is not telling people that you want to make their lives better by controlling the means of production and having a rationally planned economy. That's not fascism. So um, I also don't like Pat Sock. A lot of people have said, I kind of, at first I kind of liked it. I thought, oh, okay, well, it's, you know, like a short abbreviation. Some people said it's, it's, it's something that our, our detractors came up with to sound like NATSOC, like National Socialism. Mm -hmm. So if that's what it is, I don't like it because I'm not a fascist. Look, there were many speakers at our conference that were people of color. There were many speakers at our conference that were, were, were trans, that were you know from different political schools. I mean, we're not fascists, okay? And no matter how many times I make clear what we stand for, I mean, we actually opened our CPI Pledge of Unity has in the pledge to eliminate all traces of fascism from the earth to unite the peoples of all races, all nationalities, all beliefs. We're not a fascist group, but if you if you want to believe that, I can't stop you. And so it's really not even worth addressing. Next question. A little bit of a strange one here. Was Cosby taken out because of the Schiller Institute? I have, I have never heard of anything related between those two individuals. And we've got another Cosby question. Iran in North Korea, Cosby satellites, question mark. <laughs> Keep up with the super chats. I appreciate the money, at least. I mean, money's coming in. You're donating to our organization. So there you go. Um, Next. Yeah. How should communists approach the electoral system? Um, my feeling is there, there are different tactics when it comes to elections, right? And that there are, there are, there are many different ways. The first way communists relate to the elections is they see it as a recruiting ground. You know, basically, a lot of people, the only time they think about politics and different parties, the only time they ever think about it is when it's time to vote. Mm -hmm. So if you don't participate in the election, then don't put out your communist message, you're going to miss all those people. So a lot of times communists run in elections to get their message out. That's what Eugene Debs did with the Socialist Party. He knew he wasn't going to win. It was to get his message out, right? That's what William Z. Foster, Gus Hall, that's what they do, right? So that's one way of intervening. Another way of intervening is every so often there'll be a candidate who's like a third party candidate. They're not going to win, but they're like the center of resistance to where capitalism is going. Great example of that would be Henry Wallace when he ran in 1948. He wasn't going to win, but the Democrats and Republicans were united around McCarthyism in the Cold War. Henry Wallace was united around opposing the Cold War, 
opposing racism and Jim Crow, opposing anti-labor legislation, supporting civil rights. And so Henry Wallace's campaign, Henry Wallace wasn't a communist, but that campaign was like the center of resistance. And Cynthia McKinney's 2008 campaign, I voted for Cynthia McKinney at the Green Party because her campaign was kind of like that. You know, she was on the anti-war ticket, anti-imperialism, supporting Cuba, supporting Venezuela. You know, you know, so I voted for Cynthia McKinney. So sometimes you have a campaign that's not communist uh, and it's not going to win, but it's still like a center of resistance. Communist embrace. So then every so often you'll have an election where we will, where communists will embrace one of the mainstream candidates. Very rare, very rare. I can think of only two instances in U.S. history where it was right to endorse one of the major candidates. The first was in 1864 when Abraham Lincoln was running for re-election. Mm. In 1864, Abraham Lincoln was running for re-election. If the Democrats had defeated Lincoln, they would have signed a peace treaty with the South. The South would have broken away and we would have had slavery in the South. Mm. Obviously, if you're a communist, you have to vote for Lincoln. And there was actually a party in the elections, very interesting fact, it was running to the left of Lincoln. They're called the Radical Democratic Party, the Free Soilers. They said Lincoln wasn't anti-slavery enough. Karl Marx didn't endorse them. Karl Marx endorsed Lincoln because he said Lincoln has to win. He has to get reelected so that the, the second American Revolution, the defeat of slavery, can happen. So in 1864, Lincoln was a Republican. He was a mainstream candidate. He wasn't a communist, wasn't a socialist, had said a lot of racist things, but he had to win that election. If you were a legit communist, you had to vote for Lincoln. And the only other example of that is in 1936, Roosevelt was running for re-election. Mm. And Roosevelt was running for re-election on a platform of supporting the labor movement and opposing fascism. And his, the Republican opponents were supporting Hitler and supporting the industrialists and the National Association of Manufacturers. They wanted, they wanted some type of like crackdown on the labor movement. Whereas Roosevelt was supporting the labor unions and, and saying that workers had a right to occupy their factories. And, and 1936, when Roosevelt basically said, never before in history have they stood so united against a candidate as they are today. And I welcome their hatred. You know, I mean, you know, you listen to the 1936 Roosevelt campaign. That was a, a pro-labor, pro-working class, anti-fascist popular front that if Roosevelt had lost in 1936, the United States might have been on the other side of the, Civil War, or of the, the Second World War. They, there would never have been a sit-down strike wave. We would not have unemployment insurance. We, I mean, at that point, 1936, voting for Roosevelt was the right thing to do. And the Communist Party, it's very interesting. They ran their own candidate, Earl Browder, for office. But Earl Browder said, the essence of my campaign is to defeat the Republic. Meaning that, you know, basically I'm the other Roosevelt, you know, and in swing states, people voted for him, but he was basically campaigning for Roosevelt with the communist message. Mm. And that was correct. So those are the only two elections in U.S. history where voting for a Democrat, Roosevelt, or voting for a Republican, Lincoln was correct. But those are rare instances, but they do happen. Mm. And then the other thing that happens is sometimes communists boycott elections, mm. right? In a revolutionary situation, especially like in a, in a revolutionary situation, right? One thing that will happen is, you know, the, you know, the, say that there was like a, a revolutionary people's government and then there was some kind of like capitalist government that had been formed. One thing that might happen, like Chiang Kai-shek did this in China during the civil war in China. Chiang Kai-shek controlled some territories and Mao and his Red Army controlled other territories. And Chiang Kai-shek was basically saying that Mao's Red Army had to disarm. And they're like, we're not going to do that. We, we should be part of the government that comes out of World War II, et cetera. So in the areas uh, that Chiang Kai-shek controlled, Basically, they ordered everyone to vote in an election the communists weren't allowed to participate. So in the areas that the communists, you know, the, the, the Chiang Kai-shek controlled, where there were communists, they refused to vote because they said the communists, we don't recognize this government. We recognize the People's Republic in the area, you know. And so there might be a situation where you have dual government structures where the bourgeoisie has an election. 
to like give legitimacy to their regime as a new revolutionary government is emerging where people would boycott. They said, no, we're going to vote in the other countries. You know, and that might happen. So there's instances where you might boycott. There's instances where you might you know, run just to uh, get your name out there and recruit. There's instances where you may endorse like a campaign that's like a center of opposition to imperialism. There's instances where you may actually vote for a major candidate. There's instances where you might boycott. It's based on what will advance the class struggle at the time. That's what it's based on. There's no whole rules. And it really annoys me, especially a lot of trots. They have it in their head. Thou shalt never vote for a Democrat or a Republican. You know, and it's like, who said? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. It's what is best at the time, right? I mean, I campaigned for Charles Barron. Charles Barron was on the city council of New York. He was running for Congress. He was a Democrat. Charles Barron has a picture of Lenin in his office. He's a former Black Panther, okay? He's, he was a personal friend of Gaddafi personal friend of Hugo Chavez, right? He is a Marxist and a revolutionary. I would campaign for him if he was a Republican. I would campaign for him no matter what party he was in. I was voting for Charles Barron and all these yeah. people at the time are like, oh my God, you're campaigning for a Democrat. I'm not campaigning for a Democrat. I'm campaigning for Charles Barron, okay? You know, and, and that's the thing is it's based on what is best at the time, mm -hmm. right? And it may be, it may be that at some point, um, you know, a third party is able to emerge in the United States. It's gonna be very difficult with our electoral system the way it's set up. But it also may be that a time may come along where we have like socialist Republican, socialist Democrats that are running in the primaries. And that might be cool. You know, it's based on what is best at the time. Next question. This is the last question. So if you have any more super chats, put them in now. Did, and didn't somebody ask me about Michael Jackson? I thought we were ignoring that. Oh, okay. Well, no, it's interesting. I just wanted to, to say, um, you know, I, I think Michael Jackson is guilty, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. I, I did know that at the time Michael Jackson was facing his second trial for child molestation. Uh, the Workers' World Party supported him, actually. They maintained he was framed and it was like anti-trans, anti-LGBT stuff. And then you can read some articles by Leslie Feinberg about like defending Michael Jackson, saying he's being framed. They're whipping up anti-trans, anti-LGBT hysteria against him. That may be what the person was alluding to. I, I think he was guilty. I think he was just, I'm sorry. I mean, if you're an adult man and you're like, I, mean, I don't want to get into the specifics of what he was doing, but he shouldn't have been doing that. And you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't buy it. Don't yeah. buy it. Don't buy it. All right, next question. Okay. <clears throat> World economy after you know, the Ukraine crisis um, and the removal of Russia from SWIFT. And what will the US do to continue to speed up the fall, the downfall of, I'm assuming, Russia? I feel like right now, you know, this is a game of chicken. You ever see, you ever see one of my favorite movies is Rebel Without a Cause, starring James Dean. And in that movie, there's two two high school kids and they play chicken, whereas they have stolen cars and they're racing towards a cliff. And, uh, you know, the idea is that, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, you know, you jump out of the car and whoever jumps out first loses. Right. That's yeah. the idea. Right. And so it's like it's like chicken, like who can get the closest to the cliff without jumping out. Right. That's kind of what's going on. You know, the USA is wrecking the world economy and they're hoping that this will get Russia to just back down and let them set up a Nazi base in Ukraine mm. and all that. And Russia is saying, no, we're going to hold out. We're going to keep, you know, we're going to keep breaking apart the Ukrainian military. We're going to keep protecting Donetsk and Lugansk. And the USA is saying, okay, well, and the, the USA is going to try their hardest. But eventually, there's going to be so much money lost and all that, that the United States is going to have to say, okay, fine. And they're going to back off on some of this SWIFT stuff, right? But right now, things are very intense. And the USA is like wrecking the global economy. I mean, Brazil is not going to get the, the um, uh, what do you call it, the 
the, uh, the, what do you call that? The stuff they put on the crops, the fertilizer they need. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's having a disastrous impact. Now, Russia's Russia, Brazil either. Yeah. I mean, much of Europe much of Europe, many African countries. This is an absolute disastrous move. That said, there is this weird among the Biden people, they kind of want to wreck the world economy because then that like concentrates power in the hands of monopolies. And so we will see what comes out of this. But yeah, it's having a devastating effect on the world economy. And that they're trying to, they're saying to Russia, like, yeah, we're, I mean, it's, it's this kind of game they're playing where they're trying to see how much pain they can inflict on Russia before Russia backs down. Russia's going to keep going and, 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 we're going to see who backs down first, basically. And I have a feeling it'll be the United States. Just saying. Me too. I, I have a feeling it'll be the United States. But I'll, I'll tell you, they're playing chicken with the lives of Ukrainian people. So all this yep. claim, all these Ukrainian flags and they stand with Ukraine, it's all bullshit. They are letting the bodies of Ukrainian people pile up in order to hurt Russia. Right. They want to fight Russia. They don't give a flying F about the Ukrainian people. And that's really apparent because, I mean, how many Ukrainians need to die so that Joe Biden can make the point that, that what? What point is he even making? I, you know what I mean? It's like, American exceptionalism. It, yeah, they would just tell Zelensky, you know, OK, you can sign the treaty. Hmm. This would end. But Zelensky clearly doesn't run Ukraine. And that's all there is to it. Yep. All right. Well, it looks like we're done. We're going to play the closing video. Oh, and on. oh, one last question. History of socialism in Somalia and Cambodia. Somalia, I know zero about. Cambodia, I know that uh, that during the Vietnam War, they were bombed and devastated. And amid that devastation, the Cambodian Communist Party took power. There were two factions in it. One was a legit Marxist-Leninist faction. The other was run by a CIA agent and, like, you know, nut job, but an asset of the United States named Pol Pot. Pol Pot started exterminating the Marxist-Leninist wing of his own party. He also was like an anarcho-primitivist. He said they could have socialism with just agrarian you know, with no industries, he forcibly evacuated the cities and started like executing people for owning glasses and yeah, having glasses. And it, it was the idea and burned all the money and was trying to have like some kind of ultra egalitarian, primitive anarcho communism. And he was an asset of the United States. The United States was airdropping guns and weapons, etc. Um, and so based on that, uh, Vietnam intervened in Cambodia to rescue the Marxist wing of the party. And and wipe out Pol Pot. So then Pol Pot started an insurgency against against the Cambodian government and against Vietnam. And that's what happened in Cambodia. Great book if you want to learn about the Kampuchea War. That's what it was called. Because when Pol Pot took over Cambodia, he called it Democratic Kampuchea. Great book. It's called The Revolution Rescued by Erwin Silver. And it goes into great detail about all of this. Now, Pol Pot was a crazed ultra-left extremist uh, who was basically cultivated by American intelligence to fight Marxist-Leninists in Vietnam. Unfortunately, China was in their anti-Soviet mode. So China intervened in Vietnam to protect Pol Pot. Mm. It was a whole disaster. And that this was Brzezinski's strategy was instead of having the USA directly fight the communists, uh, the idea was to manipulate the communists against each other. I think there's a very famous story, uh, you know, when there was talk the USA might send troops to Afghanistan. There was some Vietnam veteran who got up and said, you know, they told me that they sent us to Vietnam to fight communists. But now the American government is giving guns to Cambodian communists. So that they can kill Vietnamese communists. And then now they're being attacked by the Chinese communists, allegedly because the Vietnam Vietnamese are agents of the Russian communists. Yeah. He says, seems to me this isn't really about communism. Mm. And it wasn't about communism. It was about keeping Indochina poor. That's what it was about. It was about keeping Indochina poor and underdeveloped, a colony of U.S. imperialism. And if you look at what's happened in Vietnam since the end of, of the Vietnam War, since 1980, when the Cambodia War ended, everything's been increasing. Life expectancy has gone up. Living standards have gone up. The World Economic Forum says it's an economic miracle in Vietnam. Socialism, the socialist-oriented market economy has done miracles for Vietnam. 
And that's what U.S. imperialism was in Vietnam to prevent. They wanted Vietnam to be a poor captive market and uh, the, the Vietnam War and then followed by the Kampuchea War where they were arming different factions was about keeping that region poor and underdeveloped, which is what they've been doing to Central America. Same thing with the drug cartels and all of that. It's about keeping the world poor so they can stay rich. So, and ultimately the Vietnamese were victorious and have raised millions of their people out of poverty. And that's a damn good thing. All right, we're done. Surge. In the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists, and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. The danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, but revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night, everybody. Until next time.